Hello, and welcome to an online debate between Pastor Derek Walker and Dr. Michael L. Brown. We welcome you all to this uh, unique debate format, which uh, only 2020 uh, can produce uh, through all that we're experiencing, but we welcome all of you who are <laughs> visiting us online. Uh, my name is Steve Alt, and I'll be moderating today's debate between Pastor Walker and Dr. Brown. The subject of the debate today is the rapture, and the question is, does the Bible teach a pre-tribulation rapture? As long as the church has been in existence, Christians have been fascinated with the concept of the rapture. The clear, two clearest statements about the coming rapture are found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 52, which I will now quote from the New International Version. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now, both debaters have agreed that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, that we will be changed. But the question is, when will it happen? Will the Lord meet us in the air and turn around and take us to heaven for at least seven years? Or will we meet him in the air and then escort him back to earth where he sets up his kingdom? That is the subject of today's debate. Pastor Derek Walker will be taking the pre-tribulation position and Dr. Michael Brown will take the post-tribulation position. The format of the debate will be as follows. There will be 20-minute opening presentations by each presenter. We will follow that with a 12-minute rebuttal from each, and then there'll be a cross-examination where each uh, participant will cross-examine the other twice, and that makes for a total of four cross-examinations that will last uh, 10 minutes. Then we'll be closing statements of five minutes apiece, and we'll follow that up with questions from the viewing and listening audience. We're going to ask alternating questions, four questions that are directed towards each, and the debaters will uh, respond to those questions uh, within a two-minute span, and the other will be able to give a one-minute rebuttal. So for those of you that will be submitting questions, it's important for us to be able to sift through the questions that you specify to whom you're directing your question, to Pastor Walker or to Dr. Brown. And that way we'll be able to pick four questions for each of them, and they will be uh, doing that at the conclusion of this debate. So please allow me to introduce our two speakers. First is Pastor Derek Walker, who is the senior pastor of Oxford Bible Church in Oxford, United Kingdom, where he pioneered uh, this work with his wife, Hillary, in 1991. He's a Bible teacher with a weekly broadcast of On God TV, Revelation TV, TBN Russia, 
El Shaddai in Ethiopia, and Lighthouse TV in Uganda. He has authored 18 books, including a few on Bible prophecy and Bible chronology. He also leads regular trips to Israel, relating the Bible to its setting. Derek has an MA in mathematics from Oxford University. He and his wife, Hillary, have been married for 33 years. Dr. Michael Brown is the founder and president of Ask Dr. Brown Ministries and Fire School of Ministry in Concord, North Carolina. He is the host of the daily nationally syndicated talk show, The Line of Fire, where he serves as your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. He also hosts TV on God TV, Middle East TV, METV, and NRB TV. <clears throat> He's the author of more than 40 books, including Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture, which he co-authored with Dr. Craig Keener. He holds a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Literatures from New York University and has served as a visiting or adjunct professor at seven leading universities. He's widely recognized as today's foremost Messianic Jewish apologist. Now, the question for our debate today is, does the Bible teach a pre-tribulation rapture? Pastor Walker answers yes to this question, and he will be the first one to make his presentation. Uh, Pastor Walker, you have 20 minutes, and you may begin now. Thank you, Steve. I'd like to thank Dr. Brown for being willing to debate with me today. I hold him in the highest esteem, and it's an honor to be part of this event. I'd also like to thank his ministry for hosting it. In presenting the case for the pre-trib rapture, I first want to focus on its purpose in the divine plan. It's not just about our physical change, but it's the exciting climactic moment in the divine romance where Christ our bridegroom comes to fetch his bride so that we might be married, fully united together forever. God designed the Jewish marriage customs to be a picture of the divine romance. Having chosen his bride from eternity, um, Christ, came to earth to demonstrate his love by dying for us, paying the bride price with his blood. And then by the gospel, he declares his everlasting love, offering us an eternal covenant. When we receive Christ, we're betrothed to him. And the betrothal was sealed by the couple, drinking from the same cup, signifying their hearts and lives were now as one. Then the man told uh, the woman that he must now return to his father's house to make all necessary preparations for their wedding and future life together such as building a place for them to live. He assured her that he'd surely return to her, for her, and then they'd be together forever. That's exactly what we see at the Last Supper, when Jesus offered the cup to his disciples, representing the church, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, drink from it, all of you. And then soon after the meal, our bridegroom gave these tender words of assurance in John 14. He said, in my father's house and many places, many dwelling places, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. But where I am, you, there you may be also. And this is the promise of the rapture. He declared that he'd soon return to his father's house, heaven, to prepare a place for us, which he fulfilled in his ascension. But he also promised to return from heaven to receive us to himself so we'd be with him forever. This is his promise to return for his bride and take her with him to heaven. Otherwise, his promise to prepare dwelling places in heaven would be meaningless. Once the groom made this promise and departed to his father's house, there'd be a time of physical separation, during which both bride and groom would keep their hearts pure, looking forward with joyful anticipation to their reunion when all their dreams would be fulfilled. 
And when the great moment came, when his father gave the signal for the wedding to go ahead, the son would go in joyful procession to fetch his bride. Meanwhile, the bride, who didn't know exactly when her broom would come for her, would eagerly look for his coming, hoping each day would be the great day. She'd prepare her wedding dress in which she'd be presented to him. And the Bible speaks of this being our righteous deeds for Christ. This is a picture of the present age of the preparation of the bride, where we're called to live holy lives, looking forward to his return. And thus the rapture is the dramatic romantic moment when the Lord himself comes to where his bride lives and with a shout of joy, he personally lifts her up in his arms and carries her away to his father's house for the wedding. This isn't something he can delegate to his angels. And that's why the classic rapture passage says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. That's the bridegroom shouting for joy. Back at the father's house, she'd bathe and change into her wedding dress. A picture of the judgment seat of Christ, where we're cleansed of our dead works and receive our rewards, being clothed in glory according to our works. She's then presented to her bridegroom as a glorious bride and becomes his wife, after which they spend some special time together to consummate the marriage before appearing in public again for the marriage feast. The fact Jesus comes especially for his bride to take her to heaven agrees perfectly with the pre-trib rapture, but there's no room for it in the post-trib scenario where they both have to immediately return to battlefield earth. In fact, much of the meaning and romance of the rapture is lost because there's no time for that, since there's so many other things that have to be done on that day. Revelation 19 confirms the pre-trib scenario, for there we see the glorious bride already in heaven before the second coming, only now she's his wife. Verse 7, Let's be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, has happened, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then the marriage supper is announced, which is about to take place on earth. Then this same bride, who's been identified, just been identified by her fine linen, clean and bright, is seen as returning to earth in, with Christ, in verse 14, because it says the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Therefore, the rapture of the bride must have taken place sometime well before the second coming. And Revelation 4 tells us exactly when this happens. John's called up to heaven by a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here and I'll show you things which must take place after this. Clearly, he's about to be shown a future time and the following chapters make it clear it's the tribulation. In heaven, just before the tribulation, in verse 4, he sees 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones, clothed in white robes, with crowns of gold on their head. Now, whenever the term elder is used in the Bible elsewhere, it refers to men, who by reason of their maturity are leaders. In fact, it's a standard term for church leaders. They're identified also by thrones, white robes, and crowns, which are the very things pro promised to the overcomers of the church age in the previous chapter, chapter three. And these they must have received at the judgment seat of Christ. So these are the church that's already been raptured. Also, elders is hardly an appropriate name for angels because they're all the same age. So at the start of the tribulation, the church is already in heaven, represented by the 24 elders, as confirmed by their song to Christ in chapter 5, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So it seems that they represent the whole church from every nation. 
Now, there is a manuscript issue in this verse. Where, should it be translated redeemed us or redeemed them? And there's a similar issue in verse 10 as well. But the evidence in verse, for verse 9 is very much in favor of redeemed us. In fact, 23 out of 24 of the 24 manuscripts say us. And the only exception is Alexandrinus. And in that case, the word is missing altogether. It doesn't say them, it just says nothing. Even the oldest manuscript, Sinaiticus, and the other primary manuscripts has, says us. So if we follow the manuscript evidence for verse 9, these 24 elders sing, you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And this proves that the church is already in heaven at the start of the tribulation. Now the action in heaven in chapter 5 centers on the scroll with seven seals, the title deed of the earth, and how the lamb alone is worthy to open it to prove his right to take possession of the earth and judge all who rebel against his rule. And then in Revelation 6, he opens the first six seals, releasing judgments on the earth. And this proves that the whole tribulation is a time of divine judgment, which is why a better name for it really is the day of the Lord. The judgments are unfolded through seven seals, seven trumpets and seven bowls of wrath, all initiated from heaven. God's wrath doesn't start with the bowls of wrath because we're told that in them the wrath of God is completed. Following the breaking of the seals, we see Antichrist going forth to conquer, followed by world war, worldwide famines, pestilences, persecutions, massive disturbances of nature, earthquakes, and so on. And these closely match the birth pains that Jesus described as marking the end of the age. Now, the fact that Christ is now moving in judgment mode is seen by the fact that he's no longer seated, but he is now standing. Revelation 5, 6 says, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the father. In Psalm 110, the father tells the son to sit at his right hand until it's time for him to subdue his enemies underfoot. So the time for judgment has now come. And it will continue until its climax at the great and awesome or literally manifest day of the Lord. That's his second coming. As his bride, we should have great confidence that he will come to deliver us before this time of worldwide wrath. First of all, we have his promise in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, where believers are described as those who wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers or rescues us from the wrath to come. This wrath must certainly include the wrath of the day of the Lord or tribulation, in fact, this must be the wrath in view because our deliverance from this coming wrath is directly connected to his return for us. And this promise is then confirmed later in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The context tells us that this is the wrath of the day of the Lord and that the salvation we receive instead of the wrath is the completion of our salvation at the rapture. A third promise is Revelation 3, verse 10, which says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. As in all New Testament letters, the promises are to the whole church. As Christ says in verse 13, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This worldwide time of trial can only be the tribulation, which is the main subject of the following chapters of Revelation. The key point here is that Christ didn't just say he'd keep us from the trial, he's, but from the hour of trial, from the very time period itself. That's the plain meaning. 
even if one ignores that fact, the promise is more general than just keeping us from the wrath of God during the tribulation. It says we'd be protected from this worldwide trial, which includes the wrath of man and Satan. But this is manifestly not true concerning the tribulation saints, because they are killed in great numbers by the Antichrist. Now, having given the promise, the next verse says Christ will accomplish it by the rapture, because it says, behold, I'm coming quickly. After all, if this time of trial is worldwide and it will come upon all who live on the earth, the only way to be kept from it is to be removed from the earth. And surely a loving and powerful bridegroom, before he bombards his wife's uh, bride's dwelling place, he would extract her before releasing his wrath. I want to emphasize that the reason I believe in a pre-trib rapture is not to escape the tribulation and persecution of the Antichrist. If the tribulation was just like the church age, but with a bit of extra persecution, as some imagine it, that would be one thing. But if we take Revelation literally, it will be a time period utterly unlike anything before. For it won't just be a time when evil comes to its fullness, but a time of ever-increasing divine wrath leading up to the second coming, and we're not appointed to wrath. Christ also reveals the rapture in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. His disciples essentially ask him three questions, and his talk is built around answering them. They say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? <clears throat> now, the end, or santelia, of the age isn't the same thing as his second coming, which is the telos, or the final end. The end of the age is its closing period, really the consummation of the age. In other words, the tribulation, called by the Jews the birth pains of Messiah, because it's a time of tribulation leading up to the birth of the Messianic kingdom. He answered the first question about the temple's destruction in Luke 21. The second question asked for the sign of his coming. Uh, though they asked for a sign, he actually gives a number of signs leading up to his second coming. First, he describes the beginning of the tribulation, which he describes as the beginning of birth pains. Now, Matthew 24, 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places, just like the seals. All these are the beginning of birth pains, he says. Now, Paul, building on the teaching of Jesus, refers to these labor pains in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction or ruin comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Here Paul describes the judgments of the day of the Lord beginning suddenly in the world like labor pains that will continue and intensify until the end. Then Jesus references Daniel's 70th week, which is yet to be fulfilled, which describes the last seven years before the second coming, predicting that the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel for seven years, but halfway through he'll break it and desecrate the temple with the abomination of desolation. In the context of giving the countdown to his coming, he names this as a major sign in verse 15. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. And then the narrative continues, and then he says, verse 21, for then there'll be great tribulation, such as not been seen since the found foundation of the world until this time, nor, no, nor shall ever be. And uh, he's not talking about events in the first century, because as terrible as they were, they weren't the worst the world has ever seen. In fact, the next verse says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. 
Notice Jesus talk, calls the second half of Daniel's 70th week the Great Tribulation, which is three and a half years. And this end time marker is confirmed by Daniel 12:11, that gives the exact time to the very end, to the very day. He says, from the time the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, they will be 1,290 days. And then finally, Jesus described the cosmic signs at the end of the tribulation that will herald his coming in power and glory. So up to now, it would seem he'd answered the second question about the sign of his coming, but they'd also asked about the sign of the end of the age, which is a different, though closely related issue. What signs, in other words, herald the tribulation? How can we know when it's close to starting? We'd expect him to address this next, and he does in verse 36. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. The but that begins this verse is the translation of peri dea in the Greek, which is a structural marker indicating he's now moving on to a different issue, namely when the end of the age or tribulation will begin. And in contrast to the day of the second coming, which is clearly signposted and knowable in advance, this day when the tribulation starts is unknowable without any signs. But it's in the next few verses that he throws something completely new into the mix, for he also describes this day as his coming. So as well as him coming at the end of the time of worldwide judgment, he says he will come before it begins, initiating this time of judgment. And this is where he talks about the days of Noah in verse 37. He says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, the flood provides a fitting picture of the tribulation, because that's the only other example in history of a worldwide judgment. In, the, in that case, in the days leading up to the flood, normal life was going on without any signs of what was about to happen. And then suddenly judgment fell and it was too late to escape. And the key event triggering this judgment that Jesus points out was Noah entering the ark. For on that same day, the rain began to fall. In other words, just before judgment fell, there was a physical relocation of believers to a place of safety above the scene of judgment. Even the ark, a type of Christ. Jesus said that that's what will happen at his coming. The final event before tribulation judgment falls is the disappearance of believers into Christ, the ark of our salvation. They'll be lifted to safety and then the tribulation judgments will start to fall that very same day. In Luke 17, connected with that, Jesus also compared the day of his coming to the day of Lot's escape from Sodom just before judgment fell. And so Jesus is teaching that while life is going on as normal, before the tribulation judgment start, the believers will first be evacuated from the scene of judgment, and then the time of judgment will begin. As in the days of Noah and Lot, he said, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And this is confirmed by the next verses, verse 40. It says, then on the day of his coming, two men will be in the field, one taken, the other left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken, the other left. The word translated taken here is paralambano, whose main meaning is positive, to take to be with, as in Joseph taking his Mary to be his wife. And it's the very same word that Jesus used in John 14 when he promised to come again to receive us to himself. 
So Jesus here speaks of an unknowable day when he'll come to take us to be with him just before he starts pouring out the tribulation flood on the earth, which is different from the knowable day when he'll return to bring these judgments to their climax. Then he emphasizes the day of his coming, which initiates the day of the Lord judgments, is unknowable. In other words, it could happen at any time which motivates us to be spiritually awake and prepared. Verse 42, he says, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. This says even believers can't know it. This is called imminence, which says God has kept the timing of the, of the rapture secret. So as far as we're concerned, he could come at any moment. As we've seen, this doesn't apply to his coming after the tribulation to, to establish the kingdom. Christ further emphasized the sudden, unexpected, unpredictable, imminent nature of the first phase of his coming by comparing it to the coming of a thief. Verse 43, but know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he'd have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. This surprising analogy of his coming as a thief is surely a deliberate contrast to his coming in power and glory when he comes to take over the house of the earth and turn all the lights on. The purpose of a thief isn't to take over the house or turn on its lights, but to come quickly, take the valuables and then leave quickly. And this perfectly describes the rapture because Christ will come to take his precious ones. And soon enough, the world will realize many believers, many millions have disappeared. And it will seem as if a thief had come. But of course, he is no thief for he'll only take what belongs to him, those he's purchased with his blood. But the world will experience this sudden event as a thief in the night. But for us, we'll experience it as the bridegroom coming for his bride. And Paul used the very same language in declaring the tribulation will begin with the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2. He says the day of the Lord, the tribulation, so comes as a thief in the night. The coming of Christ to take us home. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes on them as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Notice okay, this coming of Christ. Thank Sorry? you, Pastor Walker. And uh, that was uh, <clears throat> a very uh, fact-filled presentation. Now we're going to have Dr. Brown, who's going to give us his 20-minute presentation. Dr. Brown, you may start now. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. Uh, thrilled to have this opportunity to debate and discuss this important issue. Appreciate Pastor Walker, his evident love for Jesus, his love for the Word, uh, but he's he's quite wrong, categorically wrong on this. In fact, reading the Bible on your own, you'd never come up with such a scenario. And there's a reason the Bible never once speaks of our quote disappearance, which you would think would be an important word otherwise. So we don't divide over this. We are one in Jesus. But during the rebuttal time, we'll go through specific misstatements and misinterpretations of Scripture, which will be very, very easy to do. But let me give my own background. Uh, I came to faith in a, a pre-trib church at the age of 16, and I pretty much heard about pre-tribulation message before I even heard the rest of the gospel. So when I got saved, this was gospel truth, period. And then I was in the word day and night. I read the word cover to cover about five times the first two years I was saved. Used to memorize 20 verses a day, did that for months. So I memorized 4,000 verses. A friend came to me and he said, could you explain the difference between the rapture and the second coming based on Matthew 24? So I started going through it with him and realized, wow, I really don't know this subject well. Failing to realize the reason I didn't know it well was because it wasn't in the Bible. 
So I, I then got all the classic dispensational books, pre-trib books, the older classics from the early 1900s, the more recent ones. I mastered the system. I taught it really dogmatically. And then a friend gave me a book that, that said that the pre-trib rapture was unknown in the early church, didn't come around until 1830. I finished the book. I didn't know if it was accurate or not, but I went back to the scriptures. And when I did, I realized, wait, this, this is not in the Bible. And you'll never get this just reading the Bible on your own. So what I want to do is lay out the fundamental reasons for this. I, I don't believe in a second coming followed seven years later by a third coming of Jesus. I believe in one second coming, the Lord's glorious appearing, his literal arrival here on planet Earth at the end of the tribulation period. There's not a stitch, a scriptural support for a secret pre-trib rapture separate from the actual second coming. The teachings of Jesus and the apostles are against it. A mountain of scriptural evidence is against it. The Greek vocabulary is against it. So let's look first at the Greek vocabulary of the second coming. In Paul's words in Titus 2.13, we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, not for a secret hidden event. The scriptures state that he will be revealed from heaven, which means that he will be seen, and we will be gathered to meet him at his coming, his parousia, which in Greek speaks of, of a literal arrival, of an actual presence, as in flight 493 has now arrived, as opposed to flight 493 is flying by. And this coming of the Lord takes place after a final time of tribulation. As Jesus said, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, Matthew 24, 27, followed by immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the sign of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the, the four winds from one end of the sky to the other, verses 29 to 31. And note that the same word, parousia, is used by Jesus just a few verses later when he says, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be, Matthew 24, 37. Remarkably, we just heard that these are speaking of two completely separate events, the rapture and the second coming. Yet Jesus uses the exact same words in the exact same context to describe them. So it's interesting, while examining Matthew 24 and the two different Greek words used for taken, Pastor Walker pointed out in his book, The Pre-Tribulation Rapture, quote, that if Jesus wanted to connect these two things, he would have used the same word. Well, when it comes to his return, he does use the same word in these verses. That's because he's not speaking of two different events, but of one second coming, not a second coming and a third coming. Uh, the bottom line, Pastor Walker, is that if the rapture is described as the Lord's coming, in verses like 1 Thessalonians 4.15, and yet there is another coming seven years later after the tribulation, then you do believe in a second coming and a third coming. There's no way around it. If someone tried to teach the pre-trib view but use consistent biblical vocabulary in the process, it would sound like this. We're looking forward to the coming of Jesus and the gathering of the elect to him, and then seven years later, we're looking forward to the coming of Jesus and the gathering of the elect to him. You couldn't make it any more confusing. In the same way, pre-trib teachers tell us that the Greek verb gather in Matthew 24, 31 speaks of the gathering of the elect at the end of the tribulation. 
uh, at the time of the parousia of Jesus. But then they tell us that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, the identical Greek noun for the gathering of the elect at the Lord's parousia is speaking about the secret rapture seven years earlier. Really? Jesus and Paul both speak our, about our being gathered to the Lord at his coming, and both in identical end-time context, yet pre-tribbers must tell us that these identical words describing the same event are actually talking about two different events separated by seven years. This would be like me saying a soccer game, or for Pastor Walker, a football game, is played in two halves. The first half, which is 45 minutes long, then a break, followed by the first half, which is 45 minutes long, and at the end of the first half, the game is over. In all honesty, once you press into the Greek New Testament and look carefully at the words used, the pre-trib teaching becomes just as convoluted. So if I asked a pre-trib teacher to explain the difference between the rapture and the second coming using the words of Jesus and Paul, I would have to say, are you talking about the Lord's parousia or the Lord's parousia? Or can you explain if you're referring to the epiphania, the appearing of the Lord, or the epiphania of the Lord? It becomes meaningless gibberish. We're not looking forward to an arrival that doesn't arrive, to an appearance that is unseen, and to a revealing that is hidden. Rather than Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10, interestingly skipped in Pastor Walker's presentation, we are looking forward, we, the believers, are looking forward to the day when God will give release to his persecuted church, quote, at the revelation, apocalypsis, of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. Note that in 1 Corinthians 1.7, Paul says that we eagerly await the apocalypsis, revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter uses the same word when speaking of our future hope in 1 Peter 1.7, 1.13, And yet here, in 2 Thessalonians 1, the revelation of Jesus that we're waiting for is his public, visible return in flaming fire when he destroys the wicked. That's the wrath that we're saved from and not appointed to. There's no possible pre-trib reading of 2 Thessalonians 1 that works. We receive relief when Jesus is revealed in flaming fire to judge the ungodly. That's when he comes to be glorified by his saints. As he appears in the sky for the world to see an awesome glory, he catches us up to meet him. And we, with our transformed bodies, descend together with our king. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, Paul reiterates this in the verses that follow writing in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. And I will gladly debate the meaning of the Greek word apostasia in this context. There's absolutely no question that it speaks of a spiritual rebellion rather than a physical departure. And note carefully that even if you try to dispute the meaning of the word apostasia, which is, is really a battle you don't want to fight, both the apostasia and the revealing of the man of lawlessness must occur before the Lord returns for us. Note also 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Jesus will destroy the Antichrist, quote, with the breath of his mouth and with, will bring him to nothing at the appearance, epiphania, of his coming, parousia. 
Yet in verses like 1 Thessalonians 4.15 and 2 Thessalonians 2.1, just a few verses earlier, Paul tells the Thessalonians that they will be gathered to the Lord at his parousia, which we are told refers to the rapture. Yet here we learn that Jesus will destroy the Antichrist at his parousia. That's because it's one and the same event. To repeat, there's not a second and a third coming. There is one second coming. It doesn't work to say that there are two phases to the second coming when the identical vocabulary is used to describe both phases. And more importantly, the key words used refer to a public, visible arrival on the earth. This is also in harmony with the parable of the wheat and the weeds, as explained by Jesus in Matthew 13, where he tells us that the weeds are first pulled out and destroyed, and then the righteous rejoice. In the same way, just as Paul states that Jesus will destroy the Antichrist at his appearing, Epiphania, in 1 Timothy 6.14, he urges Timothy to keep his command without spot or blame until the appearing of Jesus. Well, in 2 Timothy 4.8, he speaks of all of us who long for his appearing. In 2 Timothy 1.10, Paul refers to the Lord's first coming as an appearing. Clearly, there's only one future appearing of Jesus, and that is when he comes at the end of the tribulation to destroy the man of lawlessness. Notice again that this appearing cannot be a secret event any more than his first appearing was a secret event. In keeping with this, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, Paul says that we will be gathered to meet the Lord and transformed into our new bodies at the sounding of the trumpet, which he calls the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. Yet we already saw in Matthew 24 that Jesus comes after the tribulation to gather his elect with the sound of a loud trumpet. And in Revelation 11, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and his Messiah with the sounding of the seventh and final trumpet. How then can Paul say that the last trumpet is sounded with the secret rapture seven years before Jesus comes with the loud trumpet blast? And, and how can it be the last trumpet if seven more trumpets will sound after it? The easy answer is that it describes one and the same event, that it, it is the last trumpet. It's the seventh of seven at the end of tribulation. Simple. As for believers in tribulation, if, if there's anything we're, we're promised in the Bible, it's tribulation, thlipsis in Greek. But in Jesus, we overcome. In John 16, 33, Jesus tells us that in this world, we will have tribulation, but not to be discouraged since he has overcome the world. In Acts 14, 22, Paul tells us that we must enter the kingdom through many tribulations. In Romans 5, 3, Paul writes that the tribulation helps develop character. While in 835, in his list of things that will not separate us from Messiah's love, he puts tribulation at the top of the list. That's why right at the beginning of the book of Revelation, John writes, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, Revelation 1.9. The noun thlipsis occurs 43 times in the New Testament. There's no basis for turning it into a special, distinct time period from which we will, will be raptured out. To the contrary, God's consistent method is to keep us safe in the midst of the storm. As Jesus prayed for his apostles in John 17.15, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, 
but that you protect them from the evil one. And by the way, this is the only other time in the Greek New Testament where the identical words are used as in Revelation 3.10, where he will keep us from that hour of trial. Pastor Walker would say, the final tribulation is different. This is God's wrath being poured out. I say in response, God knows how to shield his people from his wrath. That's why the Lord says to us in Isaiah 26.20, with reference to the final outpouring of wrath, go, my people, enter your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until the wrath has passed. And remember, the plagues were poured out on the Egyptians, but not on Israel before the Exodus. Sadly, rather than emphasizing that Jesus saves all believers through all generations from the coming wrath, meaning the final judgment in hell, the pre-trib message emphasized that Jesus saves the final generation of believers from a seven-year period of tribulation. I've even seen altar calls urging people to get saved to avoid the tribulation. That's not the message or the emphasis of the New Testament. And while we're to live our lives with eager expectation, looking forward to the Lord's return every day of our lives and always walking worthy of that high calling, the New Testament writers did not imagine that Jesus could come at any moment. I'll address this more in my rebuttal time. As Peter said of Jesus in Acts 3.21, for he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Paul also explains in Romans 11, verses 11 through 15, that Israel's future salvation would usher in the resurrection of the dead. Yet pre-trib proponents recognize that the people of Israel will turn to the Lord en masse during the tribulation period, if not at the end of that period. And that is precisely when the dead in Christ will rise to meet the Lord and the air, at the end of the tribulation period. That's why it's also at the end of the tribulation period in Revelation 19, in conjunction with the visible second coming of Jesus, that it's written, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. As Professor Craig Keener wrote in our book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, this is also what we would expect. Jewish people expected the Messianic banquet to begin with the consummation of God's kingdom. Jesus also spoke of eating and drinking with us in the kingdom and of Gentile believers joining that banquet in the kingdom. The banquet belongs not to the tribulation, but to the kingdom, which pre-tribulationists normally associate with the millennium. In short, there's not a stitch of biblical support for a pre-trib rapture, and I doubt that one out of 10 million adherents of the pre-trib system came to believe in this doctrine solely by studying the scriptures, which without outside influence. And if you're watching this debate and you've held to a pre-trib rapture, ask yourself this question. Did you learn it studying the Bible on your own, or you taught it? Accordingly, there is clear evidence that the disciples of the apostles, the early church leaders, expected Jesus to return after the Antichrist was revealed, and after a time of tribulation. That's what they were taught. The idea of a secret rapture completely separated from the second coming was totally unknown to them. As summarized by Professor Thomas Lee in his 1986 article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, the return of Christ, as taught by the Antinicene fathers, was an event that occurred after tribulation and persecution for their faith. They were urged to be faithful. He adds, since this return only occurred only after a period of tribulation, it is impossible to see how the Antinicene fathers can be described as giving teaching that supports the view of a pre-tribulation return of Christ. Scholar after scholar would support that. The good news is that the gospel is made for the hard times, and in Jesus, 
We are more than conquerors and overcomers. The tougher the times, the more we will shine. Sadly, Corey Ten Boon reported that believers in China were taught before the rise of the bamboo curtain, the rise of communism, that before things got really bad, they would be taken out. And of course, that didn't happen. They were slaughtered, they were tortured, they were imprisoned, they endured, endured unimaginable hardships. And yet, when missionaries came back afterwards, these believers that survived were very upset. They said, you told us we'd be taken out before things got really bad. I recently heard a major preacher from a major pulpit saying, I know things are bad with the virus, but don't worry, we will escape before things get really bad. You say, but that's not Pastor Walker's position. I understand that, but I'm saying this is how we've seen it play out time and time again. The good news is in Jesus, we overcome all tribulation, all testing, we grow through it. The good news is God knows how to shield us from his wrath. And this is what we're looking forward to. Think about it. Not some disappearance that is nowhere taught in, in the Bible. Again, show me that word disappearance. Just, just once referring to us, just once. Not taught at all. Nothing in there. I know it's been popularized by Lake Great Planet Earth and by, by the Jerry Jenkins, Tim LaHaye series and all of these different things, but we've got to go with scripture. This is what's going to happen. Things are going to shake and get very intense. The idea that we're going to be able to count exact days, of, of course not. Some people think we're in the tribulation now. All right. No, no, no. There's all kinds of confusion. It's not like you're going to be able to count days perfectly. Paul says, everyone's going to think peace and safety in the world, but we're going to know that day is not going to come like us for a thief. It's going to be like a thief for the world, but not for us because we know, because we're aware. And it's talking about the sudden destruction that's going to come. Whenever it talks about coming like a thief, it's always at the end of the tribulation period in the New Testament. Jesus appears for the whole world to see in the midst of shaking calamity when many people are still in denial and just trying to live their lives in peace and safety, in deception. Jesus appears in the midst of the shaking for the whole world to see with his glorious angels. We are then caught up to meet him. The dead and Messiah rise first. We're all caught up to meet him together. And we descend in glory as he establishes his kingdom and we celebrate our union, our marriage. It's a glorious picture. It's a picture of triumph. It's a picture of overcoming and based on the persecution the early saints endured, they knew this is how God will ultimately vindicate. I will stay with the plain and simple meaning of Scripture. I do not believe in a second coming and a third coming, but in one second coming only. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brown. We will now proceed to a rebuttal period where each of our uh, participants will have 12 minutes to rebut uh, what the other one has spoken. I want to send a reminder to everybody in the viewing and listening audience to feel free at any time to post any questions that you want to ask either one of these uh, participants. And we will uh, sift through the questions that we receive and, and four directed to each one will be presented uh, after the closing argument. So if you want your question to be considered, please post it in the chat box and we will consider it. So now, uh, Pastor Walker, you have 12 minutes for rebuttal. You may begin now. Thank you. Um, yes, uh, there isn't enough time, of course, but uh, a lot of um, the this, uh, what, Dr. Brown is saying is is about the parousia is based on terminology. Um, for instance, prophecies in the Old Testament prophesied the coming of the Messiah. As theological language, we now break that down into the first coming and the 
and the second coming because it worked out more complicated than perhaps people would have expected. Simplicity might have thought the Messiah would do everything in one go, but he didn't. And so it, it's just a matter of terminology, whether we describe the two phases of the Lord's return or call it a third, second, third coming. I mean, it's just theological language to describe what happened. There's nothing intrinsically um, unlikely or silly about the idea that there might be two stages to the Lord's return, just as there were two stages, as it were, to the messianic fulfillment. One, suffering for our salvation, and two, for our glory. Um, a lot of the t uh, terminology is used, such as secret, and I, I think that's mostly used by opponents of the pre-trib rapture. I, I certainly think that the only thing is that's secret about the rapture is the timing. The timing is a secret. But apart from that, uh, it's be the greatest public event that's ever been thus far. And, and I do disagree that um, the Perusia, Epiphania, Apocalypsis, and so on, these key words, they are not technical terms that every time they are used, it always refers to Christ's second coming. They're used in all kinds of ways. The question is really, are those appropriate words to use for the rapture? Well, yes, indeed. The parousia, in, in, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, is indeed um, uh, the coming of Christ. The fact that he doesn't land on earth doesn't mean it's not a parousia. That would be nonsense. In fact, Thessalonians 4 calls it a parousia when, even when he's in the clouds. You know, and when Christ returns, we won't be able to say to him, well, it isn't a proper Perusia yet because you haven't actually landed on the earth. There's no definition of Perusia that says he has to land on the earth to make it a Perusia. It's, is, it an, an, is, it a manif is it an appearing? Absolutely be the greatest ever appearing. He'll appear in glory to over a billion people. The first coming's described as an appearing, uh, a, ma a manifestation. Uh, and he only appeared probably to 50, I don't know, a, th a few thousand people would have seen him. And yet the rapture will be far greater, be a billion people he'll appear to in glory. And it will be an unveiling of his glory. So these words are entirely appropriate to use for the rapture as well as it's not a halfway coming or a secret coming or anything like that. It's just the using words to discredit the concept, which is a valid concept. Of course, it has to be justified, but you can't dismiss it on the grounds of just words. And in terms of why Christ would use parousia for both events, I, I was hoping that you would bring up your un Uncle Fred illustration uh, that you had in your book, but uh, let me just rewrite that a bit. And so let's say Uncle Fred is an evangelist holding a city crusade. And he's asked, when is he gonna come and do this crusade? And uh, he knows that they're thinking about the big meeting in the stadium. So he tells them it's going to be in eight weeks. But actually, he's also coming before that to meet specially with all the pastors and workers at a time not publicized. So to give a complete answer, he would have to say, well, look, I am coming to do the crusade in eight weeks, but I'm also coming uh, a bit before that for a meeting. And the context of his, com so he talks about the two com comings because they've asked him about it. And, uh, but the context makes it clear whether he is, which, which of those comings it is. And so it is in, the, in Matthew 24, the context tells you these are two different com comings. Because in the first coming, 
the first one is knowable, the other one is unknowable. One is during a time of peace and safety, the world is living a normal life, and however you try and make it, and, and this bit was cut off because I ran out of time, it's absolutely not normal life leading up to the second coming. All hell is breaking loose. The battle of Armageddon is on, the bowls of wrath have been poured out. It's total devastation, it's the worst time ever. All flesh is about to die. You cannot say that that's normal life, peace and safety. You cannot reconcile. The context tells you there are two separate comings going on here. I, I want to also just talk about the, uh, the, the trumpets and so on, the, uh, the rapture at the last trumpet, because this is a common uh, thing that's, that's uh, argued. Uh, surely it must be the seventh trumpet in Revelation, or surely it's the great trumpet in Matthew 24, 31, uh, at the second coming. Well, it can't be the seventh trumpet for a number of reasons, because Paul can't be referencing the seven trumpets in Revelation, which hadn't even been written, uh, won't be written for another 50 years. The second, seventh trumpet is an angelic trumpet blown by an angel, not the trumpet God, of God blown by Christ. The seventh trumpet releases judgments on the world, while the rapture trumpet results in the transformation of, bod of the bodies of the saints and us rising to meet him. And the timing's wrong. In a plain reading of Revelation, the seventh trumpet is followed by the seven bowls of wrath. And it's only at the sixth bowl that the armies start being gathered for Armageddon. So they're at, at least a few months be before the second coming when the seventh trumpet is blown. Now, the, the great trumpet of Matthew 24, 31 at the second coming, that is more worthy of consideration. You know that he'll send his angels with a great trumpet and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. But despite some similarities, the differences are too great to be the rapture of the church. Uh, just as there are similarities describing a bush and a tree, it doesn't follow that the bush is the same thing as a tree. For example, there's no resurrection or rapture in these verses, which is the essence of the event. In the rapture, we are not gathered and lifted up by angels, but by Christ himself. And, uh, and what would that say about our glorified bodies if we had to have the angels doing the lifting? But most importantly, I would say, study verse 31, Matthew 24, 31 in light of the Old Testament backgrounds, how the original Jewish hearers would have understood it because they knew their Old Testament. And it's a summary, really, of all the prophets had to say about the final worldwide gathering of Israel to her land. And in particular, Jesus identified the trumpet as the great trumpet. And that's the key to this whole passage, because there's only one other verse in the Bible that speaks of the great trumpet. That's Isaiah 27, verse 12. It says, you'll be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. And it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They'll come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, outcasts in the land of Egypt, and worship the Lord in the holy mount in Jerusalem. And so the Jewish disciples would have understood Jesus' meaning, the, the regathering of believing Israel from the nations at his coming. And uh, the, the context confirms that this is talking about Israel, because he says, for the lex's sake, these days will be shortened. In other words, Israel is under threat of extermination at Armageddon, and Jesus returns to Israel to save his elect, to fulfill his covenant to her. And then it says, having done that, he will complete her regathering by blowing the great trumpet, gathering them from all the nations in preparation for the kingdom. And so this is using, Jesus used the same language as the prophets in terms of 
it's saying that the Israel would be scattered to the four winds and in the same way they would be gathered from the four winds from the four corners of the earth so using the exact same language of the Old Testament Jesus is saying he's going to blow the great trumpet to regather Israel uh, back to the land you see where is he he's on the Mount of Olives and he blows the great trumpet gathering Israel back to himself so how do we explain Paul's use of the last trumpet in Corinthians 15, which is a, a classic attack, of course, on the preacher position? I don't I believe we don't have to search for another trumpet in the Bible to explain it because there's a coherent explanation within the text itself of the two classic rapture passages of what that trumpet is. Paul is at great pains to emphasize that the tr event initiated by the trumpet of God happens in two stages, involving two groups of saints, uh, those who've died and those who are still living. It says the Lord will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. So it's clear there's a distinct order here with the dead in Christ rising first, followed by we who are still alive. It follows that the trump of God will be blown twice. The first sounding will be to resurrect the dead and call them to Christ. Then the second sounding will be to rapture the living. This, of course, is the last trumpet. And this agrees perfectly with 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we'll all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Notice it's specifically those who are alive who are changed at the sounding of the last trumpet. What about the dead in Christ who have already been raised at this time? In the next verse, Paul tells us that they too will be raised at the sounding of God's trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and will be changed. So by combining these two passages, the clear deduction is that Christ will send, sound his trumpet twice. At the first trumpet, the dead are raised. And at the last trumpet, we who are still alive will be changed and raptured. I would also just say uh, very quickly that the difference with the, as in the times of Moses, is simply that um, Jesus didn't say it would be like in the days of Moses, that, that in other words, uh, like in Noah's flood, because it's a worldwide judgment that you can't have a place on earth where the, they were protected like they were at Goshen. For instance, that way, God would have preserved some high ground when the flood was poured out that Noah could stay safe at. But since it was a worldwide judgment, that was not possible. And so he had to be removed from the very scene of judgment. And so in that sense, it is not like the, the day of Moses. And uh, interestingly enough, the, the verse in Isaiah um, it, that talks about hide my people from the wrath. Well, that is actually, if you if you read them, the following, the surrounding verse, it says that the Lord is coming out of heaven in Isaiah 27, and therefore hide yourself, my people, from this coming wrath. But the problem is, on the post-trib theory, then they weren't going to be hiding because this is when Jesus is going to rapture them. He shouldn't say hide. He said, get ready for liftoff. And so... Um, I don't think that Isaiah verse is particularly helpful to the post-trib position. Um, yeah, I'll settle for that. Okay, thank you, Pastor Walker. Uh, Dr. Brown, you now have 12 minutes. <coughs> you may start now. All right. Uh, what we just heard is that the last trumpet is not the last trumpet. We just heard about another trumpet manufactured that Paul doesn't speak about. 
We heard that the parousia is different than the parousia, the epiphania is different than the epiphania, the apocalypsis is different than the apocalypsis, and that God does not have the ability to protect us from his wrath when he pours it out on the whole world. Wow. Okay. We also didn't hear a syllable of response to 2 Thessalonians 1, which says that we, persecuted believers, will get relief when Jesus comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that don't know God. We didn't hear a syllable of response to 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. that says the apostasia, which I will clearly demonstrate however you want me to lexically uh, from, from history. That means a spiritual rebellion that that and the revealing of the Antichrist must happen first before the Lord's parousia. Also, the idea that these words must be nuanced in a certain way every time they're used. Just think of this. If Pastor Derek had just used biblical vocabulary in his teaching, it would have left you completely confused, like my analogy about soccer, first half followed by a first half. Also, we're talking now about a parousia that doesn't actually arrive. It spoke of the, the, the emperor, say, arriving in the city. And then the word for meet him will, will meet him in the air. That was describing in the ancient world, often used when the crowds would go out of the city to meet the emperor as he made his procession in. We go out to escort him back. You say, well, what about John 14, that Jesus will go and prepare a place for us? Well, it doesn't say he's going to heaven to prepare a place for us in heaven. It says in his father's house, there are many rooms, okay? And that Greek word room is found later in John 14. In fact, you won't find it elsewhere, right? You'll find it later in John 14, where Jesus says that he and his father will come and dwell with us. We will have rooms here. In other words, it is a spiritual dwelling that he has prepared for us that we are enjoying now. The idea that he's going to go to heaven, prepare room for us, which we get to enjoy seven years, and then come back to him with him on earth where he rules and reigns is completely ludicrous. The idea that Revelation 3.10 speaks of a secret rapture, we won't use the word secret here, speaks of a rapture because he will keep us from the hour. Well, he, Jesus tells us exactly how in John 17.15, using the only time in the Greek Bible, the identical verb and preposition, that he prays to his Father, I am not praying that you will take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. He knows how to keep his people. Uh, Revelation 4.1 does not speak of a rapture. It doesn't speak, John does not represent a rapture. He's caught up in heaven to see uh, future events that are going to happen. You say, yeah, but, but, but the elders there, that represents the church. And Revelation 5, they're already redeemed in heaven. Yeah, thousands have already died. Thousands have already been killed. Of course, they're believers in heaven already. But where does it speak anywhere in these chapters of believers being taken up to heaven? It doesn't. Just John's caught up to see a vision. That's it. Take, take the words for what they say. Again, last trumpet, we've now heard that the last trumpet is not really the last trumpet because there's a significant trumpet. Just focus on Matthew 24 that follows it. We're also told that there are now two trumpet sounds that we have to imagine. <clears throat> Go with it where you want. So also all of you who have believed that will suddenly just be taken out secretly and no one sees that coming, that's not what Pastor Derek believes. So it's going to be a public event that everybody sees and hears, but then we'll be gone. All right, so all that you've seen, the Left Behind series, the, the movies, that's not what he's teaching and believing. So just to clarify that. Okay, uh, the idea that flood equals tribulation, that's false. Uh, as it was in the days of Noah, people just going about their business, then what happens? What's the point? The whole point there is then sudden destruction came. 
not not a period of seven years where the destruction gets worse and worse. That's the point. All right, that's number one. Number two, uh, in Revelation 11, after the fall, the two witnesses are killed. The people are rejoicing and they're giving gifts and celebrating. And over and over in Revelation, it says no matter what's being poured out, the people refuse to repent. So they were going on living lives as normal as they could. But Paul's explicit about it. First Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, that when people are saying peace and safety, that's when sudden destruction comes. And how does he describe it? Sudden destruction on the world. As for the idea that there is a rapture that does not have clear signs and then a second coming with clear signs, well, that's totally false because Jesus gives signs. And in Luke 21, when you see these things happening, know that your redemption is near. He gives the signs. Pastor Orkin in his book admits their signs. I can give exact quotes, but just not as clear as the signs of the second coming. No, they're, they're all describing the same event. Remember, Paul says that day will not overtake you like a thief. Revelation 16, in the midst of tribulation and wrath, Jesus says, I come like a thief. Second Peter 3, the day of the Lord comes like a thief, and that's the time of final destruction and judgment that's being spoken of there. So people will be deceived. Second Thessalonians 2, a spirit of strong delusion is poured out on people because they believe a lie. They choose to believe a lie. So of course they're going to be in denial, all right? So when we press the no analogy correctly, we come out with the exact opposite conclusion. The idea that there was an any moment rapture that the early church believed in is, is absolutely bogus. Again, overwhelming. And I look at three different doctoral dissertations that studied this, as well as uh, others that focused on it. The early church leaders taught consistently that we'll be here during a time of Antichrist. It'll be a time of fierce persecution, and then Jesus will return. Paul is explicit that the parousia that we are waiting for is the parousia when Jesus destroys the Antichrist, when he comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that don't know God. But just think of this. Acts 1.6, when the disciples asked Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, hey, it's not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father is appointed by his own authority, but, verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In other words, they've got a job to do, this commission. They didn't think, oh, he can come any second. No, he just told them he's not coming any second. So they live with expectation, readiness, the sense he's at the door. And certainly all of us know that we could die at any moment. So we live in readiness before the Lord. But, but, but think of this with me. They were given a great commission. So they knew he couldn't come in any second. Peter in, in, in Acts 3 says explicitly that he must remain in heaven. Jesus must remain in heaven until the time of the restoration of all things. So there is a time and season for his coming, and there must be Jewish repentance first. Paul speaks of that in Romans, the 11th chapter, the requirement of Jewish repentance first before we get to that point of life from the dead. Not only so, but Jesus told Peter what was going to happen to him as an old man and how he was going to be crucified. So the idea that they believe Jesus come in a second, totally false. Paul, or, or excuse me, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 says you should exhort one another daily, daily all the more as you see the day approaching. All the more as you see the day approaching. Well, what if you don't see the day approach? In other words, there are signs, there are indications that it's getting closer and closer. And let's just say Israel will be back in the land if Pastor Derek believes that's the fig tree Jesus was speaking of. Well, then until Israel was back in the land, then Jesus couldn't return. So uh, that, again, is, is also important to emphasize. And I want to say this once more. 
the idea that you know parousia and epiphania and apocalypsis that they they can't refer to the rapture uh first i defy pastor derek with gentleness and grace to teach on this and just use biblical vocabulary we're looking forward to the parousia and then after that the parousia first there'll be the epiphania and then the epiphania you must use different words or create new words like disappearance that are nowhere found in the New Testament, in the Bible. You must create these concepts to communicate. And, the, uh, and if you want a simple refutation, just go through Matthew 24 and ask who is Jesus addressing? Who is he speaking to? Because you actually have to change audiences to make this work. Well, no, this is the Jewish elect. No, this is the church. And, no, the, and, and within a few verses of each other, to speak of the identical words and the identical events say they're two separate ones becomes a council of despair. Um, let's just see. The idea we're not appointed to wrath, Paul's explicit what he's talking, to, uh, talking about. It is, it is the wrath of the second coming, final judgment, and the wrath of eternal judgment. That's what we're not appointed to. The idea that we're not appointed to a period on a few, a few years on the earth where the wrath of God is poured out is completely bogus, completely bogus. Not what he's talking about. He's explicit. When the world is saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes on them. What's he talking about? The return of Jesus, the culmination of the age, flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that don't know God. When that happens, when that happens, judgment will come on the earth, but that won't happen to you. Why? Because that day won't overtake you as a thief because you're going to be here when it happens, but it won't overtake you as a thief because your eyes will be opened. And not only will your eyes be open, the fact is you're not appointed to wrath. Therefore, that will not be for you. And where there are judgments in the world and they've been poured out through eternity, God knows how to keep his own. And I just have to ask forthrightly, are you telling me that almighty God cannot pour out his wrath on the earth and yet seal his people so that they are not touched? Are you telling me that that's impossible according to the Bible? And that when the book of Revelation talks about God's servants sealed and protected, that, that it doesn't mean what it says? So I would really challenge those points very, very strongly. And again, the idea that you can just start counting. Okay, we got 1,290 days to go. People debate all kinds of issues now. People date set wrongly all the time. I've got emails from people. Do you think now we're in the tribulation? Is this the beginning of birth pangs? The idea that you're suddenly going to be able to say, okay, it just started here. We get the clock ticking and we know the exact number of days is bogus. Even the endless numbers of interpretations about the meaning of the days and how they work out. And other days in the book of Daniel that we don't understand exactly how they're going to unfold. The idea that we're going to get that perfectly right. And then what about the idea that the days could be shortened? So we will know the time is near. We will know the judge is at the door. We will know that this is the culmination. It's not going to be like, whoop, zip, zip, we're out of here. What just happened? You know, God's driving his car and you're a taxi driver and you're in the back seat and suddenly he's gone. It's, no, that's not what's going to happen. At the culmination of the age, as God has been working and preparing and readying his people for all of these things to take place, the world will be in confusion. The world will be in denial. The world will be in blasphemy. The world will be in darkness. And people will still be saying peace and safety. We will know it's near. We don't know the day or the hour. But we will know it's near our, our, we are ready, we are expecting, and then the great sound, we're caught up to meet him. And before the whole world watches, we descend with him as he sets up his kingdom on the earth and we enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you, Dr. Brown. And uh, that concludes the rebuttal session. We're now 
approaching the uh, what I think is the most exciting and intriguing portion of the debate, that is the cross-examination. We're going to have uh, Pastor Walker cross-examine Dr. Brown for 10 minutes, and after that, Dr. Brown will cross-examine Pastor Walker for 10 minutes, and then we'll repeat that one more time. Now, this is where uh, each of our uh, debate participants can uh, hold the opponent's hands to the fire and force them to respond to a particular point or question that may not have been addressed in their presentation or their rebuttal. So we, we are, are forcing everybody to address the issues we want them to address and give the answers that we all need. So this is where, if you have any questions, those of you in the listening audience, this is a good place where they might get addressed. And if they don't, then make sure you ask that question and we will uh, uh, consider having that included at the end of the debate when questions are going to be pr presented to each of our participants. Derek, uh, Pastor Walker, uh, you will be uh, first to cross-examine Dr. Brown. and You can ask him uh, any questions that you have, and uh, you'll have a 10-minute period where you can uh, cross-examine him, and you can begin now. Thank you. I do. I just need to be clarify. I think uh, Dr. Brown is misunderstood. I didn't say that when the rapture happens, the whole world will see it. I, I was simply saying that it's a massive public event because, let's say, a billion people will see it, but not the unbelievers. Whether it will be heard or not is another issue. All right. Um, Dr. Brown, I'm interested in uh, your view on the Daniel 70, 70th week. I'll just quickly read it uh, in the NIV. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So I'm just interested. Do you believe that Daniel's 70th week has already been fulfilled in uh, the first century? Uh, yes, m most likely I do for the following reasons. Uh, first, Daniel is given a revelation in Daniel, the ninth chapter, as he's praying for the return from exile. About 70 years, God says, no, there's a much more important period of 70 times 7, 490 years. And this is what's going to happen during the time of the second temple. And it, it emphasizes how atonement will be made and everlasting righteousness ushered in and things like that. So I see it first in response to Daniel's prayer. Uh, second thing is that you can make an excellent case for that uh, uh, time period, you just have a gap of from the, the coming of Jesus until that time of just about 40 years. So it's, it's not a, a gap of 2,000 years. Um, and what, ha what we do know, the Romans did break covenant and sacrifice and offering were ceased with the uh, stop with the destruction of the temple. And we also know that the, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, when they saw these things happening, they did what Jesus said. They thought this is what he was referring to, and they fled uh, to Pella, etc. So they seem to understand that was the case, and I believe that's the best and most likely reading of it. I, I agree that, um, you know, Luke 21 does talk about the Pella situation, but it, the, the Matthew 24, it seems to be different. But how would you then explain the fact that Jesus references Daniel's 70 weeks in talking about the end time tribulation when you, when you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about? then you need to flee. And, and the narrative is continuous leading up to the second coming. Right. So uh, Matthew 24, uh, I understand, as many other Old Testament prophecies, 
which is it, it has a first reference and a final reference. Like Ezekiel 36, the Jewish people coming out of exile in Babylon, there was the immediate fulfillment, but it, it didn't exhaust everything that was there. Now there's the final fulfillment as we see Jewish people being regathered in unbelief back to the land. So Matthew 24, I see is kind of layered. We all would on a certain level, unless we're, we're full preterists, so that there is a fulfillment in the first century because uh, he, he's, they're answering, they're asking the question, uh, when will this happen, the destruction of the temple? What will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? So he's answering that, and then he's also answering with his final return. So uh, I, I am not averse to the possibility that there is a dual fulfillment of Daniel 7, 70th week, as there is a dual fulfillment of Matthew 24. In other words, destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 and final destruction at the end with final coming. Uh, so first a coming in judgment and then a coming for his, for his saints. Uh, I'm not averse to that possibility. I just don't see it as the most natural reading of the text. So first and foremost, he is telling us what's going to happen in the year 70. And then he's also telling us kind of layered right behind it, what's going to happen when he returns at the end of the age. So yeah, you kind of see there could be a, a double fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week that it's a, it's a, it's a possible, it's a possibility, sir. Yeah. And, and, and you accept Daniel 12, 11, you know, the 1,290 days is talking about the end times. It, it seems to be, but if we press Daniel 12, it's also telling us that, that the resurrection we're, we're waiting for happens at the end of, of, of the period uh, spoken of. But even if, even if I accepted a literal 1,290 days, and I think you have to be very, very careful just like Daniel was praying about a little 70 years, and God said, actually, there's more to the story. There's, there's 490 or 70 times 7. The same way with Daniel's 1290 days, I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. But bottom line, even if it is talking about a period of time, what we don't know is the day or the hour. So we should know it's getting close, but the idea that I can just say, okay, it started today. I mean, surely you know with all your, your prophecy teaching, how many times people misinterpret the signs or, or think something's wrong. So the idea we can just start, okay, this is the moment this happened. We got 1290 days. What if those days are shortened? But we should know when we're getting really close to the end, it, it shouldn't be hit or miss, but we just don't know the day or the hour. As you know, the pre, pre-tribbers do uh, strong to interpret the Bible literally. And I would agree with that. And particularly with my mass background, um, you know, numbers are very important to me. Um, so do you, you seem to have a kind of, you're not sure really whether the 1,260 days, the three and a half times, the 42 months, if, if that's just spiritual, spiritualized language, or are these literal periods of time? Right. Well, if, if we're going to the book of Revelation, we know it's spiritualized language throughout. I mean, unless we think the devil is seven heads and 10 horns and things like that that there are all kinds of images. I mean, we know it's apocalyptic literature, for sure. And we also know it had to have relevance for the early church because that's first and foremost uh, to whom it was written. So there may be final antichrist, which I believe, but then application believers would have seen to, to someone like a, a Nero. So if, if you are saying there's going to be a literal fulfillment of everything literally in the book of Revelation, I would tell you it's a complete misreading of the book of Revelation. I would tell you that all ancient readers would understand this is apocalyptic literature and they would accordingly know how to read it just like when you have a dream the dream needs interpretation and that's why to this moment 
you have scholars saying, no, all of Revelation is past. No, all of Revelation is spiritual. No, all of Revelation is future because of the mystery of the symbolism. But even if I said, fine, take every day, literally, fine. Just every, it's literal numbers of days. Although there's still some passages in Daniel, I don't, I don't know that are, are, are going to be perfectly clear when, when he lists the other, uh, other lists of days here. I just don't want to get into that in, in too much detail. I'm, I'm happy to if you want, but he's got the 1290 days, but then he also has blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days. I've heard so many different interpretations, but fine. Let's say it's literal 1290 days. Fine. Okay. I've accepted the idea that everyone on the earth is going to be able to know that's exactly what happened and believers will be able to set their clock for it. The fact that I'm asked constantly about times and dates and are we in the tribulation now or did it start or it reminds me of how wrong we can be in our date setting. So even if I accept it as literal 1290 days, literal three, three and a half year period, whatever, doesn't affect anything I've said. I, th I think there is a difference between the present time because we do not have a plain statement of scripture saying, you know, the, when the Lord's coming um, or the raptures are coming. But in the tribulation, they have a plain statement of scripture that it's going to take so many days. You know, even in Daniel 12, 7, it talks about, you know, the, the angel actually lifts his both hands to heaven, actually, and swears by God that it's going to be 1,260 days. It seems to me that you have to take that literally. So how do you square that with when Jesus basically said, you know, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In other words, not only do you don't know when it's going to happen, you don't know when it's not going to happen. It, it could happen anytime. But, but Jesus tells us that that day will not overtake us as a thief. In other words, unless you're listening to him, it will be at an hour that you don't expect. But he's already told us what to expect. He's told us when you see these things, lift up your eyes for your redemption draws near. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, that day won't overtake you as a thief. So unless he gave us sufficient indication, then that day would overtake us as, as a thief. Uh, not only so, look, you've got 1,260 days, then we've got 1,290 days, and we've got 1,335 days. I would say that there is ambiguity there in, in any case. And then the possibility of what Jesus says in Matthew 24, those days being shortened. So we're not going to know the day or the hour, but we're going to know it's very, very close. And, and again, I, I, I don't, if you want to press the 1260 days, then press the 1290, then press the 1335, three different sets already. Press the fact that Jesus said that you will know. You will know the time. So it's going to come on you at an unexpected time if you live like the world. So open your eyes, listen carefully, and it won't hit you at an unexpected time. The fact that the church with pre-tribbers are constantly wondering, is it, is it going to happen now? Did Jesus come any second? Did I miss it? You know, I, I, I forgot to set my clock differently. I went to church at the wrong time. There was no one there. I thought I missed the rapture. Indicates how much confusion that the teaching can actually bring. And rather than bringing clarity, it brings all this guesswork and endless books being written about when Jesus is coming back. And, and of course, the dates are always having to change and be revised b because of the the misunderstanding. I think with this, we, we switch gears and I can. Okay. Ask yeah. The questions. 10 minutes is up. You've uh, finished that up with your last response. So Dr. Brown, you now have 10 minutes to cross-examine Pastor Walker. Yeah. So Pastor Walker, first again, thank you so much for being willing to do this and thank you for your spirit and thank you for your, your evident love for the Lord in the midst of it. And, and I'm glad we could, we could be feisty and honest and, 
out of this. All right, so I got no reply at any point to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul speaks of the parousia and says that we, the believers, the persecuted church, will receive relief when Jesus comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God. That's when he'll be glorified among us. So could you please explain that? Sure. Um, I was hoping to because it's still, it was just a matter of time that I couldn't address it. But um, it, it is an it is a powerful passage. And uh, I would say the post-trib argument depends on the particular interpretation of the word rest in in verse 7, where it says, uh, you know, to to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. And, um, and of course, you would assume that that means the ending of the persecution against the Thessalonians. Um, and, and therefore, it's a, a reference to the rapture when it says that God will give us give them rest from that persecution. Um, you know, but that's plausible. But Paul and the Thessalonians didn't find that kind of rest from their persecutors at the rapture, rather when they died. I think there's a better interpretation of that word, which means relief and relaxation from a state of tension. And it's talking about um, when a crime has been committed against you, for example, or a loved one, and you've been falsely accused of evil. Even when you're in the place of safety, you're still under tension until public justice is done and you're vindicated. Uh, and, and then the guilty are punished. And, you know, we see that in Revelation 6, you know, with the, the souls, the martyrs under the altar. And, and they are vexed, you know, how long, Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood. And so even though they're safe, they're still in a state of tension. And then they're told they should rest a little while longer until the martyrdoms are completed. And so what's going on here is not the ending of the persecution but the relief when public justice is actually done and i believe if you look at the whole context of that passage it's really talking about the righteous judge taking judicial action to repay the guilty of and their punishment and repay the righteous and of course as you know it's the same word repay is used to talk about God's punishment of the wicked and his vindication of the righteous. It's, it's a legal terminology. He will repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and he will repay those who are troubled with rest. And so what I'm saying, I would say, is yes, it is indeed the second coming, uh, but it's talking about his public vengeance on the wicked. And, uh, and it's all about vindication, because primarily the public vindication of Christ, because he's had many evil things spoken against him. He suffered great persecution and abuse uh, through his, himself and through his church. And so only when he appears at the second coming in glory will he receive his public vindication that he is who he claimed to be. And we will be part of that because we'll be on display, you know, because it says in that day he'll be glorified in his saints and admired in all those who believe. And so we will be displayed as trophies of his grace to an awestruck world. So basically, I believe it's about the public display of divine justice and vindication at the second coming. And it, it's not about the rapture at all. All right. So I would point out that you constantly have to use the word rapture, 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 rapture to separate it from the, the words that are used over and over and over and over. So uh, the word rapture, how many times would you say, if I can get a quick answer to this, the Greek equivalent of the word rapture, how many times is that found explicitly in the New Testament with reference to the subject we're talking about? 
We're talking about Harpazzo, you mean, in Thessalonians. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's, that, that's it. I mean, but that's what so, we do with theology. I could say, you know, how many times... Uh, right, but uh, no, if, if I could... If I could... Is, is the word Trinity in the Bible, you know, that. That's, right. We use certain theological labels. The, the point to, I'm making so is... The, the, point, the point I'm making is that Paul explicitly does not. Paul explicitly res, res, speaks over and over of the parousia, over and over of the epiphania, the apocalypsis. These are the words used. Jesus speaks of these words as, as well. And yet the only way you can make sense of this is to not use biblical vocabulary. So I would just challenge you in a future presentation to just use biblical vocabulary throughout the way it's used. But we know that we're waiting for his appearing, that we're all, all longing for his appearing. And then we see in 2 Thessalonians 2 that Paul speaks about the coming of the Lord, where he will destroy the Antichrist, speaks of that coming of the Lord at the beginning of, of the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, but says that day will not come till the apostasia comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Uh, let me just quote this to you from Professor, uh, from Anthony Hopkins. Um, of the 15 occurrences of the feminine noun apostasia, five from the Greek Old Testament, three from the Apocrypha, two from the New Testament, two from the Papyra, and three from Josephus, all 15 refer to religious departure or apostasy, rebellion, or revolt. Are you saying that every major lexicon, uh, every major tr uh, translation that translates with apostasy or rebellion and an, a 400-year window of Greek material, that they're all wrong and that does not mean apostasy there? Um, yeah, I see you've read my book. <laughs> the, I, I would say on the Thessalonian passage, first of all, that where we would primarily differ is, the, is on the definition of the day of the Lord, because you would assume the day of the Lord is the second coming in verse 2. I would say that's impossible because the whole passage would be, would be nonsense, because, you know, if they're, if they're worried that the day of the Lord had come, it's obvious the day of the Lord hadn't come if it's the climatic coming of the Lord in power and glory. The whole thing would be a nonsense. But to answer your specific question yes it is a minority view that the falling away the apostasia um even among pre-tribbers is 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 a departure but i'm personally convinced of that case because first of all of course it it, it was you this word apostasia uh, can mean a physical departure or a spiritual departure in the original english translations based on jerome originally it was translated departure which leaves open the possibility it's a physical one as well as a, or a spiritual one. Uh, in classical Greek, Liddell Scott does say it's a possible usage, is the physical. The verbal equivalent is the majority use is physical. Um, agreed, in the Koine Greek, the majority use is spiritual. Um, but there is one uh, use that's physical. Um, in Archimedes, the, the Sandrechner, he uses it in a physical way, and that's Koine Greek. And in the in the patristic Greek afterwards, again, it's used in a physical way. In the lamps uh, lexicon, it actually is used to describe a rapture event in the kind of fifth century Assumption of Mary. So what you have is a word that does have that physical possibility as well, from the classical Greek all the th way through the Koine Greek and through the thing, although admittedly it's not the primary use in the Koine Greek, but when it says the departure comes first, 
you know, and the man of sin will be revealed. Yeah, and before, this man of sin is revealed before the, the coming the, of our Lord Jesus, concerning the coming well, of our again, Lord Jesus Christ, and are being gathered together to Him. This will not happen until the apostasy, which, of course, overwhelmingly the evidence is against your position there, as as, as you know. Uh, but the man of sin must also okay. be revealed. This has to happen before we're being gathered to the Lord. Paul's explicit. Well. First of all, let me just say that when it says um, falling away departure, it doesn't specify what it is. So I would say that the law is, to, rather than prejudge it, uh, if it within the verbal range, do, if it does include physical, then look in the context to see what the departure is. And there is a very specific departure because verse 1 tells us that the rapture is the subject under discussion. And so I would say it's it's natural to say that the departure comes first before, again, the day of the Lord with the tribulation, not the, not the thing. And then it says the man of sin is revealed. Now, the man of sin being revealed is the first event within the day of the Lord, within the tribulation. And that's how it can read, because it says the apostasia comes first. And then the man of sin is revealed. In other words, that's the first event of the tribulation. So he's saying, you know you're not in the tribulation because the apostasia says the apostasia hasn't happened yet, whatever that is. And then also because the Antichrist hasn't been revealed. And if you were in the tribulation, the Antichrist would be revealed. So I believe that reading of it is consistent. And it's confirmed by later in the passage where it talks about the restrainer being being removed and, and then the man of sin is revealed. So it, that harmonizes very nicely. Okay, that's going to fill up our 10 minutes. So we'll return to Pastor Walker to cross-examine Dr. Brown one last time. And you can begin now. Okay, I guess um, I'd like to take us to Revelation 19. Mm -hmm. and 20. And um, in Revelation 19, of course, we see Christ return uh, in power and glory. He defeats the Antichrist. And um, and then, I, I, first of all, I don't quite understand how you explain the fact that, that it seems that the bride is already in heaven before the return of Christ. The bride is not in heaven. The bride's here on earth. The saints are mentioned Revelation 13.7, Revelation 13.10, Revelation 13.12, Revelation 14.12, Revelation 16.6, Revelation 17.6, Revelation 18.20, which also includes the apostles here on earth being killed. And then 19.8. So we're, the bride is, is here on earth. There is no hint that the bride is anywhere else. The bride's been here the whole time. But doesn't it? So you think it's a coincidence, really, that... Uh... It talks about the these this bride that's dressed um, in the white robes, bright and clean. Then the armies of heaven have exactly the same clothing following Christ on the way down. That's a kind of coincidence. Well, suddenly we've become the armies of, of heaven uh, throughout the Bible. Adonai Tzvaot, the Lord of armies, is talking about the armies of angels. So did they just get displaced? Did hundreds of references to God, uh, the armies of heaven and, and his angelic uh uh, warriors, did they just get displaced by the church? No, we know for a fact, but what we both agree on is that when Jesus returns after the tribulation, that he's coming with his angels. And we know elsewhere, angels, you know, in these shining garments. So now the, the, the church also gets to be clothed the same way 
as the angels coming down from, from heaven. But the bride is here on earth. I just gave a bunch of references indicating that with the specific New Testament emphasis, calling us saints and even referencing apostles being here on the earth. So that's indisputably uh, a New Testament reference to believers here. And the armies of heaven, you know, go through the rest of the Bible. Who do we know is coming when Jesus returns? The angels. How, how are they described elsewhere as part of his armies? So Jesus coming with the armies of heaven with his angelic armies. And now we, the church, will be also clothed in white just as the armies of heaven. Yeah, it's not coincidence. It's a beautiful picture. Okay. Um, I think we both agree that there isn't a second chance to be saved after death. Um, do you think the same is true about the second coming, that you can't be saved after Jesus has come in his power and glory? Uh, yes, correct. Well, yeah. uh, unless we want to argue about the subject of salvation in the millennial kingdom, because we both believe there'll be a millennial kingdom, unless yeah. we want to discuss that, which I think is a separate subject. But no, that yeah, the just... second coming, uh, it's not like you're going to be able to say, you know, I got it wrong. Can we get a replay here? No, that'll no. be a, a final no. judgment. Yeah. So you probably know where I'm going with this, but um, who are the sheep in the judgment of the sheep and the goats, which it says when the Son of Man comes in his glory, uh, he'll sit on the throne of his glory and all, all nations will be gathered to him and he'll separate the sheep from the goats. So who are these sheep? Yeah, so first it's about nations, not people. So I don't think you believe in national salvation, that some nations go to heaven. No, and some no, I agree. Go, all, right. the, all the Gentile nations, yeah. Right. So it's Matthew 25, 31 to 46. It could, it could well be a parable with the whole point being the, the importance of, of caring for the, the poor and the needy, the least of these among his brothers, the persecuted saints. Some would say it's persecuted Jews. It's talking about. But the contrast at the end, uh, according to what you would believe, is that some will go into the, <clears throat> the millennial kingdom and others will go to hell. And yet it says e eternal life versus eternal punishment. So to press this is in terms of salvation, it would also be a matter of salvation by, by works. It would seem that if you showed compassion to the poor and the needy among God's people, that you, you have eternal life. And if not, you go to hell forever. So that would seem to be contrary to teaching salvation through the blood. So I, I look at this as an ethical teaching and, and perhaps even a parable. By the way, Steve, your mic, I think, is on, just giving some background noise there. But um, in, in any case, uh, yeah, if, if you want to press this literally, then it underdo, uh, under, undercuts foundations of, of the gospel and it, it, uh, <clears throat> it undercuts other aspects of salvation. So <clears throat> if, if, if I wanted to understand this in a little different way, I would go to Zechariah 14 which speaks of the survivors of the, the survivors of the nations that attacked Jerusalem. So when he returns, he will destroy those attacking Jerusalem in, in the final battle. But it could be that in different nations, there were those who were not saved, but who were merciful and compassionate towards persecuted Christians and persecuted Jews. And they are the ones that enter the millennial kingdom, in which case eternal life, eternal punishment is not necessarily talking about fully eternal, but just for the, uh, the distant future, namely the coming blessing in the millennial kingdom. But however you press it, I think you're going to have as many issues or problems as I would. I, I think there are many scriptures that would say that unbelievers are not allowed into the millennium kingdom, that, you know, that, that they're removed. And I would say the sheep are, are believers and they've shown their faith by their works, you know, um, and they are the ones that enter. And the, the, prob the post-trip problem, of course, is that um, 
all these sheep will have been raptured uh, when Christ came. Um, and therefore, there won't be any sheep left. And all the goats, of course, aren't allowed into the kingdom. So you basically got nobody who can enter the Millennium Kingdom. And I think this is a, a, a pr big problem for the post-trib view. I can't see how one can get around that. Well, then if we go through your view, then this is what's going to happen to some of these believers. This is the Millennial Kingdom, Zechariah 14, <clears throat> verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem, their flesh. So he goes through all that. Then uh, it, it goes on to say, verse 16, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families, so you're saying these are all believers, right? If any of the families of the well, earth do I, not I, go I up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, that on them there shall be no rain. There's, this shall be the plague which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So they're obviously not all believers. They're the ones that, that were not complicit in the attack on Jerusalem. This, this actually makes sense of the text. That's why there's still disobedience in the Millennial Kingdom. And that's why at the end of it in Revelation 20, Satan leads masses of people in rebellion against God. If they're eternally saved believers, who's he leading in rebellion against God? So your view actually is completely contradicted by Zechariah 14 and Revelation 20. It's not really a problem for our view because we would say that all the, you know, at the start of the millennium, everyone's believers, but they, of course, will have children. There'll be a population explosion. And in due time in the millennium, there, there will be rebels and so forth. And obviously at the end, we see that. So that isn't really a, a, a major problem. But those um, those entering the millennium, though, it says that they receive eternal life. So you're saying they're not resurrected. Well, I, I believe they'll be raptured at the end of the millennium. All right. But but so they have eternal life, but then they have children that end up in rebellion. But interestingly, if any of the families that do not go up to worship to Jerusalem to worship the king, you have to wait for your population explosion. It doesn't say there's a population explosion. They're going to go up year to well, year. And if they fail to, judgment's going to come. I mean, you have, you have to read things in here that are absolutely not explicit in the text. Well, the text doesn't, doesn't talk. It just describes the millennium generally, you know. So is, is there time for one more question? Uh, you can ask. I'll try to answer quick. <laughs> no, I'm, yes, I'm you just... have a minute and a half. All right. Then. Um, Revelation 20, of course, talks about the um, the tribulation martyrs being resurrected. And it, but it seems that that happens after Christ has returned. He's destroyed the Antichrist. He then locks Satan up for a thousand years and then he resurrects the tribulation martyrs. But whereas it would seem that um, that's the wrong timing because they should have been. Uh, raptured, resurrected with uh, as part of the uh, the the first phase, as it were, of the second coming, uh, and so it seems that the timing is off there. And why are they resurrected as a separate group? Right, I, I don't believe they are resurrected. The yeah, I, I I don't believe that they are resurrected as a separate group because it speaks of the first resurrection. So there's only one first resurrection, and that takes place when Jesus returns. So I I believe it's just like Genesis one and two. You have the overview laid out, and then you get more specific, and you can think the days are out of order. But no, it's just here's the larger view, and this is the telescopic view. So unless you believe in, in three resurrections when there are only two spoken of, no, this is, this is all a description of what happens. So this, this is part of what's taking place. Those killed during the tribulation 
we uh, and and those dead in Christ, we meet the Lord together in the air when He recom- comes. That's the first resurrection, All right? So I guess okay, we, and that's that's the end of the ten minute uh, uh, period. I yep. apologize if there was some background noise that happened at exactly the time that. Uh, Dr. Brown, I, I almost lost your sound. It went very light, and I lost the picture for Pastor Walker. I didn't get an indication that my internet was unstable, but that could be what happened and it may have been associated with whatever background noise you heard. So uh, if it so happens that you lose my picture, doesn't mean I have lost interest. It could be an internet issue. Uh, and we're going to have one more uh, cross-examination Uh, And just to set the stage in case anything unusual happens with Internet connection, it'll be followed by a five-minute closing statement by each of our participants. So, uh, Dr. Brown, you now have 10 minutes to cross-examine Pastor Walker. Yeah, let me me just say that the scariest scenario would not be that we suddenly all disappear and Pastor Walker was right, but that Pastor Walker disappears and the rest of us are still here. That would be the, the scary scenario. Okay, it, in, all, in all seriousness, uh, let, let me press the, the argument that the New Testament believers thought that Jesus could come at, at any moment. So Pastor Walker, what of Acts 1, 6 through 8 that I read in the Great Commission, and then Acts 3 where Peter says he must remain in heaven until, uh, do you think that the first believers literally thought Jesus could come in any moment, or did they understand that they had a great commission that they were to go about fulfilling? Um, on the Acts 3 one, I would say about Jesus going into heaven until the time of the restoration of all things. I would say that he left, he leaves heaven. The restoration of all things actually begins in the tribulation because the last prophecy Malachi, you know, of the Old Testament is that Elijah will come first and restore all things. So the restoration begins in the tribulation, which, of course, primarily is restoring um, the, the Jews to their faith. Um, and that will happen before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Um, as for the other the issues against imminency, um, what I would say first is a blanket statement that, for instance, Jesus said, I'm coming at a time when you don't expect me. That, in a sense, is designed to humble all our kind of reasonings and rationalizations why he can't come now or, or whenever. And so, in a sense, although we can come up with, with certain difficult scenarios, I, I still think we, we need to humble ourselves under Jesus' statement there, which basically says, you, 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 you don't know. Um, now, I would also say, yes, with one or two of those, you know, Acts 1-8, the, in, a, in the first year after making that statement, it would seem unlikely that he would come at that time. And, uh, but these uh, kind of examples really only apply very early on um, in church history. Um, already in Colossians, Paul says that, you know, the gospel's gone, you know, around the world. Um, and I would also say, you know, for instance, it's, it says that, you know, you can allow certain exceptions to certain general statements of doctrine because, for instance, it says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Well, of course, that's generally true, but it's easy enough to, to find exceptions to that statement. So I don't think if you can conjure up the odd uh, exception to imminency like Peter's death and so on, um, that that negates the doctrine entirely. In fact, when it when it comes to the writing of Scripture, 
you know, in AD 45 onwards or whatever, then you, you, you know, imminency is, is, is established. So as far as we're concerned, uh, imminency holds. And I believe we have to submit to Jesus' statement there that we, we just don't know. Therefore, it could happen any time. Right. So you take the one statement we just don't know uh, against the scores well, of statements giving right. us indication right. of, of times, etc. Okay, you wrote in your book. So in any case, you, you would agree that the very first disciples immediately were not expecting in any moment rapture. Well, uh, you, all I'm saying is that that is a rationalization that I can't answer easily. Yeah, you know. Okay, fine. But, um, All right, so let me, uh, in your book, you wrote, so Jesus compares the signs to trees, which are fully developed and bearing fruit in the summer. When you see them all blossoming and putting forth leaves together in the spring, you know that summer is near. Likewise, since we know the various world conditions in which the tribulation, the trees in their fully developed form, we can know we, when we are in the time just before the tribulation, for they cannot become got the rest of the quote missing there. In, in any case, your point is... Yeah, yeah. I was that, hoping you wouldn't ask me this. Yeah. So <laughs> you're saying that the tribulation is the fully developed trees, but before that, we see the trees developing. So we can actually see, and he's telling us, okay, this is how you know it's getting closer. So yeah. if, if those things are not I anywhere developed, then we know it's not getting closer. I need to explain myself, and uh, and I apologize because I've actually changed my view on that position as we do refine our beliefs over time. Um, I've come to see now that the transition point is verse 36, and when he was talking about the fig tree and all the trees, technically in the passage, he's, he's still talking about the signs of the the second coming. And therefore, it was possible that that the you know that restoration of Israel, for instance, would happen as part of the tribulation, because I don't necessarily believe the tribulation is limited to seven years. It's simply that Daniel's 70th week is the last seven years. So, as Jesus presented it, there wasn't a contradiction with imminency. Now we have the advantage of events happening, and now we can see that the fig tree uh, has happened before the tribulation, and therefore what he applies, I do believe that still is true. But it was at the time of writing, Jesus didn't set it up as a contradiction to imminency, name, namely Israel's rebirth, because that could have happened after the rapture. Right. So uh, I, I apologize. I, I need to rewrite that, that section. All right. Hey, listen, I'm here to help you. Maybe we'll help get some <laughs> other sections rewritten. Okay, so just to, pre <laughs> just to press this, all right, again, uh, uh, Hebrews urges us to exhort one another daily, all the more as you see the day approaching. So there are certainly times in history when we don't see the day approaching. So if we're not seeing the day approaching, that would indicate that another generation sees it more clearly and therefore can be more ready. Uh, are you just saying it's a level thing throughout church history that Jesus could come at any moment and that if you're astute, and looking at scripture and looking at the signs of the times that you'll know equally he could come at any moment. Are there not times when it seems clearer that he's closer than others? Um, I would say from the way Jesus put it that he wanted the church to be constantly looking for his coming. And, and, and in a sense, the, the doctrine of imminency is a doctrine of Im ignorance. It's basically saying you don't know. And if you think you know, you don't know. I'll come when you don't expect me. And therefore, it keeps us on our toes, as it were, looking for his imminent coming. Uh, I would say, personally, that 
as church history has gone on, especially in the last century, we do see lots of signs. We do see the fig tree and the trees. And therefore, that, that does give us extra belief that, uh, you know, it, it could happen at any time. But it's always been true. I believe. And I think the early church uh, did believe in imminency and they, and they lived that way. So to press, you know, Paul mentions the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. Does he mean to every human being or just all kinds of people all over have heard it because he's burning to get the gospel to places where it's never been. And Matthew 24 says this gospel, of the kingdom must be preached as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. Uh, are you saying that the New Testament writers actually thought that they had fulfilled the Great Commission? No. All I'm saying is that, you know, we know that the, 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 the Lord of the harvest is, is waiting for uh, his complete harvest, the fullness of the Gentiles. Uh, but all I'm saying is, is we don't have that knowledge as when he considers the job done. So we... We can't use that as a rationalization. Well, Jesus can't come yet because not everyone's heard the gospel. Um, we're, we're using our own rationalization there. And he says, uh, he really says we shouldn't do that. Only he knows. It's all I'm saying. It's a, it's a doctrine of, of, of a limitation of our knowledge. He's limited our knowledge. So only he knows when that time has, is, has actually come. Yeah, certainly, again, we, we agree that we live in expectancy of the Lord's return. We could debate yeah. if that's different than, than at any moment idea. Uh, let me just press this last point again in the, in the time that we have. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2, and again, I will categorically dispute the uh, apostasia discussion, but it does say that the day of our gathering to him cannot happen until the apostasia happens and the man of sin is revealed. Can you explain to me in a, in a minute, exegetically in Greek, why you separate those two things and say first the apostasia and then when we're gone the man of sin because paul says it won't this won't happen our gathering until these two things take place yeah well if you notice where it says the first it doesn't say the apostasia and then or uh, and then and the man of sin first it says the apostasia first and the man of sin is revealed uh, i'm not a greek scholar but uh, you know from my reading I think, um, is it Thomas's commentary? He says it could be re read both ways. He could say both events have to happen first before, but you could also read it as that apostasia at first uh, and, the, and then as the first event of the day of the Lord, then um, the man of sin is revealed. And that agrees with Revelation 6, which where the Antichrist is revealed as the first event in the tribulation. So it is possible either way, to, to read it either way grammatically. That's our time. Okay, uh, 10 minutes is up. So we are now going to transition to our concluding statements. Five minutes are allotted to each of you for uh, tying all the strings together and making a final statement. Uh, Pastor Walker, you will go first, and you may start now. You give me a second. Give me a second. I've sure. Got to find my... Sure. My note. Ah, oh, yes. Got it. All right. Okay. Second Peter 1.19 says, We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you all do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This describes three lights of God. In this present time, we have the light of his prophetic word shining in our hearts. 
And Peter says we must live by that word until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And this speaks of two future different manifestations of Christ's glory parallel to the sunrise and the appearing of, a morning, of the morning star. Sunrise, of course, is a picture of Christ in his second coming when he'll rise upon the whole world and all will see him in his glory. Malachi describes the return of Christ as the rising of the son of righteousness, radiating the earth with his glory, bringing in the new day, the millennium. But shortly before the dawn, while it's still dark, another light rises into view called the morning star. It's actually Venus. And it appears as one of the brightest stars heralding the coming dawn. It signifies the sun will soon rise and the new day begin. It only appears to those awake and watching. And so it is a manifestation to true believers only. All will see the sun, but only some will experience the morning star. After the morning star, the world remains in darkness for a time before the sun rises in glory. And so likewise, Christ, our morning star, will appear first to those who are ready. And then he will appear as the son of righteousness to bring in the new day when all will see him in his glory. In Revelation 22:16, Jesus said, I am the bright morning star. So the morning star is a manifestation of the glory of Jesus. And in Revelation 2.28, he promised believers, I will give him the morning star. So this is a special future manifestation of his glory given only to believers. I believe these are romantic words of love. He's saying as the bridegroom to his bride, I will give you myself. I will fill you with my glory. And Peter says that the morning star will arise in your hearts. So this is a manifestation of Christ's glory that originates from within the hearts of believers where the Holy Spirit dwells. So while the world is asleep in the darkness before sunrise, when all will see his glory, there'll be a special manifestation of his glory given to believers only. He will appear to them as the morning star and his glory will arise in their hearts. So the morning star is the promise of the glory of Christ manifested to believers and in believers in the rapture before the second coming. So at the rapture, Jesus will release his glory and resurrection power from within us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that will transform our bodies and we will rise to meet him. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit's already in our spirit. And on that day, Jesus will give the command, releasing the morning star glory to surge out of our spirits through our hearts, transforming our bodies from mortality to immortality and that's the manifestation of the morning star and it will happen to us in the rapture and the awesome thing is it could happen to us at any moment suddenly without warning in the twinkling of an eye this is the precious truth of imminence which is only upheld by the preacher of rapture in fact the fact that christ could come suddenly at every, any moment so we could be instantly transported to be with him adds extra motivating power to our blessed hope because it's human nature to focus on what's imminent for example, if someone very important to you tells you they plan to visit sometime, but not for a few months, then yes, that will motivate you. But how much more if they tell you they might come at any time? That boosts your expectancy. It adds urgency to your preparations, making sure that you and your house are ready. And so likewise, believing in the imminent hope and return of Jesus adds fuel to our hope. And imminency is a major theme of the New Testament. Jesus said, watch for you don't know when your Lord is coming. Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Uh, watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Luke 12, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. 
Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. And James says, be patient, brethren, till the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Uh, and Titus says, uh, Paul says to Titus, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour. So let's be awake and let's be, make sure we're ready to meet the Lord, loving him and serving him with all our heart, for he could come at any time. Let's eagerly watch, look and wait for his imminent return. Thank you, Pastor Walker. Dr. Brown, you now have five minutes for your closing remarks. Again, thank you, Pastor, and, and thank you for your love for Jesus and spurring us to look forward to his return. First Thessalonians 5, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, they'll not escape. So the times he's speaking about to us are the times when sudden destruction will come on the world. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. If you're all children of light, children of the day, we're not of the night or of the darkness. So the way that we avoid being overtaken and that day coming like a thief is by living lives in love with Jesus, walking in light, walking in purity, walking in holiness, as opposed to constantly looking over our shoulders at a prophetic calendar that you have to keep in pencil because it's changing constantly. When I came to faith in 1971, How Lindsay's Late Great Planet Earth was the bestseller. Everything was laid out. Everyone saw the time is short. We're out of here any minute. And I have watched generations of people abdicate responsibility in society, thinking we're out of here any minute. Every time there's bad news in the society, what do they think? This is it. It's all going down from here. I've seen it bring spiritual irresponsibility. I've seen it bring hopelessness because rather than saying, hey, we are here to make a difference until he comes and no matter how bad things get, we will overcome it does produce an unhealthy escapism. We have to live ready to meet Jesus at any moment because any of us could die. That, we know, is a certainty. Uh, I would press categorically that in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, that when Paul says the apostasia must come first, that all Greek evidence for a 400-year period, 200 years before Jesus, 200 years after Jesus, does not have a single attestation of that noun, meaning physical departure. It always means a rebellion or a spiritual rebellion. Even the early uh, translations, English translations, they translate it with departure, like Geneva Bible. They explain what they mean, a departure from the faith. That's why all reputable modern translations translate with rebellion or apostasy. That's why all leading Greek lexicons, I'm talking about the scholars of the scholars, put that as the meaning for 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. And again, the parousia is an actual arrival. Once again, we're not looking for a parousia followed by a parousia, an epiphania followed by an epiphania, an apocalypsis followed by an apocalypsis. We're looking for one second coming. Oh, and by the way, the last trumpet really is the last trumpet. It's not followed seven years later by another trumpet. There's the last trumpet, and then after that, a trumpet. No, this is not some confusing system. And, and that's why early church testimony, study it out overwhelmingly, uh, one after another after another. They talk about the church being here during the time of the Antichrist. They talk about time of suffering. The second coming is always. Uh, uh, ver 
I'm talking about citation after citation after citation reviewed in great detail by scholars. You say, well, I heard one possible reference here. Read everything. You'll see that one possible reference disappears. 2 Thessalonians 1, what we're waiting for, the appearing, the revelation. Is that how Paul describes it? The revelation? When is that? When he comes in flaming fire to destroy the wicked. That's what we're waiting for, his glorious appearing. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. When he comes, there is one second coming. And I challenge Pastor Walker to teach this just using the consistent biblical vocabulary from the Greek. It becomes meaningless gibberish. The day of our gathering to the Lord will not come until first there is rebellion, the apostasy, the man of sin is revealed, whom Jesus will destroy with his coming, the coming that we are awaiting. And again, we know that first believers did not believe in in any moment return of Jesus when they said, will you restore the kingdom at this time? No. What does he say? You receive power. The Holy Spirit will come on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Revelation 7 speaks of a people from every language, every tribe, every tongue. So we burn to see that completed. Yes, we leave the exact timing to the Lord, but we burn with eagerness to see that completed, understanding that the fullness of the Gentiles must come in, Romans 11, 25, and all Israel will be saved, Romans 11, 26. And Paul says in Romans 11, 11 through 15, that the turning of Israel to the Lord is the final event that brings him back. So, with great expectation, I look forward to being with Jesus forever. With great expectation, I burn and long to see his return in my lifetime. Even so, come quickly, and we will glorify you until that one and only second coming. Thank you, Pastor Walker and Dr. Brown, for uh, all of your contribution with this debate. And we are now uh, only uh, remaining is to hear from the people who have been watching and listening to this debate. We're going to have a question and answer period. Uh, some people have uh, submitted questions uh, to the uh, studio so that um, we can ask those of you. I'm going to go alternate uh, asking Pastor Walker a question and then Dr. Brown. You each will answer four questions. Your answer will have two minutes to, to be completed and then the, the other uh, participant will have one minute to also respond to that question. So we will begin with you, Pastor Walker. And uh, this first question comes from uh, Barthia Norak. For Pastor Walker, what do you say to Dr. Brown's argument that the pre-trib rapture was never taught until 1830? Right, well, I would say first of all, probably. I would think that uh, it was taught by the Apostle Paul and Jesus and so forth. Um, it's not an argument that's used for any other doctrines. For instance, we could do the same thing. What about Luther and his justification by faith alone? As, as good evangelicals, we don't attack that on the basis, well, why did 1,600 years of church history have to happen before you know, Luther did that? And and of course, that argument was used against Luther. Well, all these people here have always believed for a thousand years that, um, that that isn't right. So how could you possibly be right? The issue is settled 
And I'm sure Dr. Brand would agree, you know, the issue is settled on the, on the scripture. What does the scripture say? It just so happens that eschatology is the last area of doctrine that is, was systematically worked out, you know, different areas at different times. And that's what Daniel prophesied in Daniel 12. He said, you know, that the, these things will be sealed until the time of the end. And so the, the God's truth about eschatology um, is, is, was only coming into reality uh, when people started taking it literally, and that happened at the Protestant Reformation, the principle of literal interpretation came in, but it wasn't applied to prophecy. They stayed with Augustine's amillennialism, but eventually, as people took prophecy literally, they came to see premillennialism is true, and then pre-tribulationism, I believe, was a further development of taking that literal approach. So that's the reason why it wasn't systemized until um quite late but um yeah dr brown right so yeah in short the reason that it uh it wasn't found in the church fathers was because that's not what the apostles and jesus taught and you can find justification by faith in the church fathers of course you can the fact that things got lost or obscured in later church history is not the issue the issue is that all of the church fathers that taught on this categorically, and I've got pages of scholarly data here, and, and Pastor Walker's not disputing it. They categorically taught the opposite. They categorically taught we would be here during the time of the, the Antichrist. They categorically taught Jesus will come at the end of that period of persecution and suffering. They never heard of it. They would be utterly baffled by it. I'm talking about the disciples of the apostles, and their disciples never heard of it. So quite contrary to over centuries, the church losing certain doctrinal focus, which then gets restored in the Reformation, this was never there, ever, ever, ever. None of the early church fathers taught it where it is taught. They taught just what I taught here. We are in harmony on that point. Okay, that's uh, a minute. So just two qualifications before I ask the next question. First of all, <clears throat> you're not expected or required to fill the full two minutes in answer or the full one minute in response. That's just a borderline in case an answer or a response gets a, a little bit long. So uh, just answer it as, as, as much time as you care. Second, uh, there'll be a couple of questions that may need a little filler to, to, fill, to fill in uh, exactly what's being asked. And uh, so I can ask that question and then I might uh, submit what I believe uh, is, is being asked there to give clarity to, to what the question is so that we make sure your answers are actually what uh, they are asking. So Dr. Brown, I have a question from Robin Winstead who asks if it's the last trumpet is when the uh, rapture occurs. And in the book of Revelation, there are seven bowls of wrath poured out after that. Doesn't that actually support a mid-trib rapture rather than a post-trib rapture? Yes, you, you could make that point. In, in, in other words, based on reading through Revelation and saying Revelation 11 is, is halfway through, then you could, you could potentially make that argument for a mid-trip. So it absolutely refutes pre-trip. We, we agree on that. But here's the reason I would not accept that. Number one, when that seventh trumpet is sounded, it says that the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdom of our God and his Messiah. So that seems to be the final end. So there are scholars who then look at Revelation uh, going through the 11th chapter as summarizing things, and now Revelation 12, like a re recapitulation. And again, because of the symbolism of Revelation and, and so much of the mystery of the book and having to have application in every generation on some level, that's very plausible. So 
I would go with that argument, uh, namely that there is uh, the, the fullness of things summarized at the end of Revelation 11, now a recapitulation of stepping back as things unfold. And that would also be in keeping with the type of literature, apocalyptic literature that is. The other issue is you still have, there's only one second coming. So to divide the rapture from the second coming as two separate events separated by years presents all the problems that I've been, excuse me, challenging with, with Pastor Walker. So yes, you are correct in saying that, that the last trumpet cannot be a pre-trib trumpet, but for many other reasons, it can't be a mid-trib trumpet. And the most logical explanation, again, take Revelation for what it says, that at that seventh trumpet is the culmination, boom. Now we have a recapitulation of things and a laying out beginning in the 12th chapter. And you'll see that scholars, uh, many do interpret the book of Revelation in that way. But thank you. It's a great question. Okay. Uh, Pastor Walker, you have one minute. Yes. I, I don't think there's a problem from the pre-trib view because it simply means the last trumpet of the church age. It doesn't mean the absolute last trumpet. Presumably they're blowing trumpets during the millennium. So it's, you've got to understand it in its context that it's the last of the church age. But also I agree I, my timing for the seventh trumpet is actually mid-tribulation, but for, I explained in one of my uh, talks that it couldn't possibly be the seventh trumpet because it's angelic ju judgment trumpets, totally different nature to the rapture trumpet. Um, this, the, I, it's either the fifth or the sixth trumpet, I can't remember, actually sounds for five months. So there's no reason why, although the trumpets, you know, announces the final final end, uh, you know, it could sound for a for a for a long period of time. Um, so it, it is used for the mid trib position. I agree, but I think I agree that there's you can't really make that identification work as an argument for the mid trib position. It's just not the seventh okay. trumpet is not the rapture trumpet. Okay, that minute is up. We're going to go to question two, and this one I think needs just a little bit uh, of clarification. And this comes from Casey Morgan, who asks Pastor Walker, how are people saved in the Great Tribulation without grace or the indwelling Holy Spirit? And I believe that behind that question is an interpretation of 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7 about the restrainer, the restraining force that uh, pre-tribulation rapture uh, believes uh, is either the church or the Holy Spirit. So you might give an explanation of what you, how you interpret those verses in light of this question about how do people get saved during the tribulation period? Yes, in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, it, Paul talks about a restrainer that is restraining the spirit of Antichrist, and only when that restrainer is taken out of the way that the Antichrist is revealed. Uh, I believe that the best identification of that restrainer is indeed the church, and the church, of course, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And, and so we, we are the salt of the world, restraining evil, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been given authority, and, and praise God for that. And when the church is removed in the rapture, then, of course, then when the, the uh, restraint is off and then that can be released. Uh, I differ from, from some, um, some dispensationalists who, who assume that that means the Holy Spirit is out of here. Uh, no, the Holy Spirit, yes, the church is out of here and the, the 
And so the restraining power of the Spirit through the church is removed, but the Holy Spirit is here, and people who believe, uh, there's still there's the grace of God. People, it's the same gospel, and when people believe the gospel, they'll be saved in exactly the same way. They will be, uh, they'll receive the indwelling Holy Spirit, and they'll be just as saved because they'll be saved under the new covenant. God doesn't revert to the old covenant. And so all of the activity of the Holy Spirit will continue, but the huge restrainer of, let's say, a billion Christians filled with, with the Holy Spirit um, is, is being removed. So as it were, the corks out the bottle, the Antichrist is able to come through and be manifested. And, and yes, there will be believers will come to faith. Many of them, in fact, will come to faith at that time. Okay, Dr. Brown, in one minute, please. Yeah, so I'm glad to hear Pastor Walker differs with the prevailing view that the Holy Spirit will be taken from the earth with the church, because, of course, no one gets saved without the Holy Spirit. But, you know, unfortunately, all the ones that are going to be preaching the gospel just got zapped out of here. So who's preaching the gospel? Of course, it's believers preaching the gospel during the tribulation. We're here right to the end. The scripture consistently says people get saved the same way they always have. It's the same gospel, same Jesus. As for the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, Craig Keener notes in our book that there are at least 30 different interpretations of that. We know it can't be the one we just heard because we're told that the church will not be gathered to meet with the Lord until first there is the apostasy and the man of sin revealed. So, so we know that, that that can't happen. And there are other plausible views that could have to do with a certain system of government and law and order when that's taken out of the way all restraint is gone. But there are over 30 different views. The one that doesn't work is that it refers to the church being raptured. Okay, thank you, Dr. Brown. Now I'm going to ask a question for you from uh, Brendan Sorrell, who uh, takes note of the beautiful uh, story of the Jewish wedding custom that uh, Pastor Walker spoke about. And he just would like you to uh, express your thoughts on that wedding custom. How does how, how does that fit into a post-tribulation rapture? Uh, uh, because he, he painted such a beautiful picture of a pre-trib rapture with this wedding custom. Yeah, so this is an interesting question because many of you know my background as a Jewish believer in doctorate in Semitic languages and then interacting with rabbis for decades. So I've, I've got, you can see books behind me, I've got an extensive library of rabbinic literature. And we know precious little about wedding customs in the first century. Jewish wedding customs or specifically Galilean. I've read so many accounts that give all the details online about and, and in, in pre-trib books. And then I've dug, I've dug in the ancient source. I've looked everywhere and I can't find all that stuff. A lot of what we know is what's written in the New Testament. So look at it like this. The bride is making herself ready as it's explicit in the book of Revelation in the midst of trial and testing, all right? Preserved from God's wrath and yet growing in the midst of testing trial giving our lives for, for our beloved, all right? Then he's going to come and appear for the whole world to see. He's not going to vindicate us, not in a secret way that the world doesn't see. Pastor Derek said they won't see it, only we will. No, in a public way, loud trumpet, everybody hears it, sees it, the shock of it. He now catches us up to say, that's mine. That's my bride. That's the one I died for, the one you've been persecuting and hating. That's my bride you've been messing with. The bride has now made herself ready. Now she's also clothed in white. We have now walked worthy of the Lord. We're caught up to meet him in our resurrected bodies and descend together for what we now read of explicitly, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Parallel that with 
Isaiah, the 25th chapter. It's also then that death is abolished. All right, so death is finally broken over us when he returns. Not a secret rapture before that, but right then, death abolished. We will never die, be with him forever. And then we have that glorious marriage supper after he has publicly vindicated his bride in the eyes of the whole world. It's, it's very beautiful, very scriptural. Okay, Pastor Walker. Yes, I, I would say that it is an advantage of the preacher of view. Um, it's interesting that Christ, for instance, the first coming was spread over 33 years. So I don't know why it's a problem that we're talking about a seven-year scenario related to the second coming. But the, there's a reason why it was spread over time, because all the different events that had to take place relative to the first coming, if they were compressed down, or even if you just compress Jesus' ministry to a month or something, you would lose the meaning of it. You would you, Something would be lost in that compression. And one problem with the post-trib view, and particularly in, in what I agree is a, is a beautiful concept of the bridegroom and bride, that by compressing all of that into one day, not just that, but all the kind of judgment scenarios and everything, by the, there's a good reason why God isn't going to compress it that way, I believe, because the, the meaning is lost of that. And so there's a reason why God spreads these events out so that we can actually appreciate the fullness of all these aspects rather than having everything happen on one day. Okay. Now, uh, the third question that I have, and I'll apologize if I don't pronounce uh, your name correctly, but from uh, Pablo Zajac, uh, Pastor Walker, Jesus asks the Father explicitly not to remove people, referring to John 17, 15, which says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. How do you interpret that passage? Yes, one obviously it relates to um, Revelation um, 3.10, which is a very strong pre-trib verse. Um, and I would say, you've, of course, Jesus says, don't take them out of the world. We understand that. But actually the relevant phrase is that you should keep them from the evil one. Uh, and 1 John, 1, 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are of God. And literally it says, and the whole world lies in the evil one. So I would say that we are not in the evil one. We are not in the kingdom of Satan. We are outside of the kingdom of Satan. And therefore, when he, he is praying that prayer in John 17, 15, you should keep them from the evil one. The, the idea is that we are outside, that we remain outside. Really, he's praying for our security that, that we don't apostatize, that we would be kept outside the realm of the evil one. But yes, we're, we're within the world. And so if you apply that understanding to Revelation 3.10, that he, we will be kept from the time, we will be kept outside of that time uh, that, that we call the tribulation. Okay, Dr. Brown? Yes, yeah, so it's fascinating that the verse we're just told means the opposite of what it says. Jesus said, I'm not praying that, that you take them out of the world. We're in the world, but not of it, right? But he said, I'm not praying, Father, you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one, all right? So we're not kept from the evil one by being taken out, being kept from the evil one by being empowered to overcome. That, that's why in Luke 21, which is sometimes wrongly 
pointed to a pre-trib rapture. Jesus said, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So you don't need strength to be raptured, all right? You need strength to endure, and while enduring, you are kept from the hour of tribulation. It, it is significant that the identical Greek construction, the only time found in the Greek Bible, Revelation 3.10, kept from, is also John 17.15. Jesus is not praying that the Father takes us out of this world, but keeps us in the midst of the storm. Okay, I have uh, question number three for Dr. Brown is from Air Church. And this question is, in the parable of the ten virgins, where are the wise virgins going? And why are the unwise ones left behind if the Lord is coming and will be revealed to everyone? Right, so first, it's a parable, right? So the, the parable has a certain point to it, which is to live in readiness of the Lord's return. Uh, if you want to press every point uh, of it, then it's saved versus lost, and, and you could go down other, other lines, okay? Um, so there's a point to the parable, and that's what we stress. So you go out to meet the bridegroom, and then you escort him wherever he's going, okay? So if we know the marriage supper, what do we know? The marriage supper is on the earth. Pastor Walker agrees with that. Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, and it's not... Is one that we could have months and months and years of things unfolding once he returns and sets up his kingdom. This could, judgments and all this, that's going to happen on the earth. It's not going to be squeezed that a billion people sit before the judgment seat of Christ in a seven-year period and, and, and so on. No, no, this is, could happen over many, many years on the earth. It, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 speak of a long cleanup of all the, the judgment and destruction. Zechariah 12 speaks of massive Jewish repentance. There's a lot of stuff that could be unfolding over a period of time when he returns. But... We go out to meet him, to escort him back, okay? So where are we escorting him to? Well, he's going to have the marriage supper. Where is the marriage supper? Here on earth. He's setting up his kingdom here on the earth. So we go out to meet him. Same language as in 1 Thessalonians 4, that it's a meeting just like the Greek word is used to meet the emperor as he's coming in. And we now come back and escort him. The others are now judged. The others, it's too late. Because based on his scenario, no problem for, the, for the, the five foolish virgins. They realize they missed it. They just get saved during the tribulation. No problem. No, this has finality to it. Why? Because the bridegroom is coming. He's not making an appearance before he disappears and comes back seven years later. No, no, no. This is it. This is his coming. We go out to meet him, escort him back to the marriage supper. Those that missed it, they missed it. It's too late. Okay, Pastor Walker. Yeah, um, the I agree that primarily it's a you know it's it, it's giving a a spiritual message. The um, I I would say that the ten virgins, if if we're, if you were trying to press the details, the ten virgins are not the bride because in the scenario they are. So I I I believe that you know it describes the second coming. And um, it, it emphasizes the fact that, um, that, that those without the oil won't enter into the kingdom. They'll be excluded. So unbelievers will not be allowed to enter into, into the, the messianic kingdom. And of course, the believers, presumably if they're raptured in the, um, the post-trip scenario, they won't be able, uh, then they can't. So who's left to 
possess the kingdom. On If you apply the pre-trib thing to that, then of course you do have believers on earth after the rapture. There's a new harvest of believers, the 144,000 preaching the gospel, many getting saved, and then there'll be people there. And those who, who are saved, they will enter in to the messianic kingdom. Okay, now we have a fourth question. This will be the last question that we ask. And uh, Pastor Walker, if you uh, answer uh, nothing or no to this question, uh, it'll make it for a very brief answer. So uh, I would <laughs> like to ask a follow-up one if that is the case. Uh, uh, Hector is asking, uh, do you think there is any relationship between a pre-trib rapture and the feasts of Yahweh that shown in the Pentateuch? Um, not necessarily um, because of imminence. I don't believe it, it's correct to tie it to a feast um, for sure. But of course we don't know because feasts uh, provide typology. Uh, having done my own study on the feasts, I, I'm perhaps a bit of a heretic. If it does connect with a feast, I believe it's Pentecost, not trumpets. But uh, I can't go into that now. But I don't believe that it is correct to tie the rapture to a feast. We might find out when it happens that indeed it does. Um, but my, my bet would be on Pentecost rather than trumpets if it is connected to, to a feast. But we, we simply don't know. Okay, Dr. Brown? Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, again, for other pre-tribbers, you realize that this is a very different view to say that it doesn't tie in with the fall holidays. I, I would say absolutely there's a correlation. Because what do we know? We know that Jesus dies in conjunction with Passover, rises in conjunction with first fruits, sends his spirit in conjunction with Pentecost, and he's coming back. What do we get in Matthew 24, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4? He's coming back with the sound of the trumpet. So what's the next event on the calendar after a gap of months? It's, it's Yom Truah, the, the day of the sounding of the trumpet. Uh, and then what's that followed by 10 days later? cleansing for Israel, and then what's that followed by five days later? Sukkot Tabernacles. So what do you have in Revelation, excuse me, Zechariah 12, the, uh, the Lord returns, they'll the look to me whom they've pierced, which is then followed by mass repentance leading to Zechariah 13, 1, cleansing for the nation, leading to Zechariah 14, that all the nations will come to worship the Lord at Sukkot Tabernacles. I just don't believe we can set the dates by it, but the picture for sure does speak of the second coming. Okay, we have one final question, and uh, this is uh, uh, has a little bit of setup to it to, to explain it. it. Involves the terminology, Dr. Brown, that you have used, referring to uh, the second coming that uh, you objected to it being used to an event that's seven years earlier, as if it presents confusion. Uh, looking at prophetic perspective. Uh, Prophets will prophesy multiple events in the distant future as if they are simultaneous or immediately following one another, kind of like distant mountains that look like they're touching each other. But then when the events come to pass, sometimes there's a long span of time between them, just like Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, where both comings of Messiah are spoken of as if it were one coming. Uh, so is it not possible for words like parousia or epiphania or apocalypsis to be used to refer to the rapture in some places and to the return of Jesus in other places as separate events that look like they're simultaneous, but when you come up to the fulfillment, turns out there's a seven-year gap between them. 
Yeah, a, a great question. These have all been great questions, uh, but here's why it can't work. Uh, no, number one, we have the New Testament to interpret the Old, whereas all we now have is the New Testament. So this is the final revelation that we get. Uh, secondly, some of the words don't work. A parousia is an actual arrival or an actual presence, not coming near without actually arriving. And the others speak of, of visible appearing. The, the, the third thing would be that there is mass confusion to teach it in this way, which is why I gave the analogy of a soccer or football match. We have the first half followed by the first half, and at the end of the first half, the game is over. It's just that ambiguous. So to have in, within a few verses, right, Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, speaking of the coming of the Lord, and then a few verses later saying with his coming, he destroys the Antichrist, and that's the coming that we're waiting for. Even the chronology that I've said that this must happen before that happens. So it's even telling us, no, this can't happen first. This cannot happen before these other things take place. So it's not like the, the parallel mountains and, and they look close together, but there's a massive valley in between. We're, we're actually told, okay, you got to get to the other side of the valley before this particular thing will happen. So it's the nature of the words. Many of them don't work for a secret rapture. There is the explicit statement about what must happen in sequence. And there's the fact that the words are used back to back. You know, look at parousia of the Lord in Matthew 24 and the idea that it shifts to two different parousias within the same few verses. You don't have that type of ambiguity like that in, in the Old Testament. So to leave it there is to say that the Lord did not communicate with clarity for us in the final revelation that he gave and that what he says actually doesn't mean what it says. Okay, Pastor Walker. Yes, I think it's a good point that, you know, this is how it's happened before. There are prophecies of the first coming uh, of, you know, that Messiah would come. He would die, he would suffer for our sins, and he would set up his kingdom. And, of course, we find that actually in the outworking of that, that happened in two stages. And the reason for that complexity is because we live in a fallen world, and because of sin, uh, complexity comes in. And in the same way, Christ, in his parousia, and there is nothing... Uh, about the you know the the rapture that is not a parousia this is like the king coming to a city and then he arrives at that city and then the those who who want to welcome him they go up and they welcome him that's the rapture and normally he would go into the city but there is complexity because this city the world is in rebellion against him and so he can't go just straight in um, or what well, he could, and then he'd have to blast them all out of existence. But instead, being gracious, he wants to save as many as possible. But he starts a war against that city, and he is going to do that, say, over seven plus years. And in that time, he's going to allow some to, to get saved. Okay, and so then, at the up, end of that so war, he, he comes and takes possession of the city. Unfortunately, so we'll have to stop you at this point because uh, okay. you've got over the one-minute time. Sorry. But we get, the, we get the idea of what you're saying. So uh, thank you both. And my apologies to any people who asked questions that didn't get uh, to make it on air. But we appreciate your contribution and the questions that you did ask. 
And we want to give our uh, thanks to uh, Pastor Derek Walker and Dr. Michael Brown for taking their time out to discuss this important question. It's, of course, it, the fate of the free world does not depend on the answer. Uh, it's not one of those essential doctrines of the faith, uh, but it's still one that's worthy of discussion and has its place of importance. And I'm sure that uh, everybody involved and everybody listening is going to be discussing this for some time to come. But thank you, Pastor Walker. Thank you, Dr. Brown. We appreciate you coming to do this, and you've done us a service to give us a lot of information and a lot, of, a lot to chew on in the coming days. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.